Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global, our first hours, general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to have the team or part of the team from the IBC coverage here to break down exactly how they approach that coverage. It was a fantastic uh, couple days as they put that all together. And uh, we're going to find out how they did it. So throw in your questions if you've got questions about that. If you if you watched it and you've got questions about how they put all these pieces together, go ahead and throw those in. Um, and if you have general questions, you can go ahead and throw those into Makana right now, or you can use this little QR code here and use askofficehours.com. Uh, you don't need to be logged in. You don't need to have anything else. It works 24-7. So if you see this and you think of a question, you can ask it anytime, and it's going to end up uh, somewhere where we can sort it into the daily show. So uh, go ahead and throw those questions in and let's go ahead and start with the first question. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And Graham asks, I'm creating a short video showing the use of a mobile phone app. How can I emulate the phone on my laptop for screen capture rather than having to set up a camera? Or can I record video on the phone itself? I have both iPhone and Android available. Uh, Good, Ronnie. Uh, one way we did it is to tether the phone directly to a uh, Mac and do the recording within uh, Apple uh, QuickTime. That's uh, possible. Mickey? Yeah, exactly what uh, Ronnie said. I'm going to cut to my computer here, and I have a, an iPad mini that is uh, plugged in via um, Lightning. And in QuickTime, you can create a new movie recording and select the, the uh, iOS device as the source and uh, here, uh, I, I, this is an, the iPad the display that you're seeing here, and you can record this. And another way to do it is you can open up Control Center, and you can add a shortcut for screen recording. That's that little circle uh, button at the at the bottom there. And if uh, if you add that shortcut, you can select which uh, app to um, to start recording. And I believe that screen capture, I mean, that is one of the main reasons it exists is so that you can train people or show people how something actually works on the iPad. I go, Jason. Um, only thing I have to add is whether or not you want to add uh, audio. So it's you, you can actually choose if you want the microphone to be on or off, and it's, it's going to work either way. Guy? Yeah, the NDI HX uh, capture app will allow you to broadcast that on the network and you can pick it up in NDI studio monitor and hit record where there's the handy dandy dongle, depending on which um, phone you have. If you have one of the 14 or earlier, this is lightning to HDMI and it works beautifully and doesn't create any kind of load on the on the uh, device itself. So it's just really easy or you can do it. Same thing with Apple TV. And one of the things you can do if you have the dongle, of course, and, and you have something like an ISO, an, I, an ATEM, you, if you wanted to have a training where you're jumping back and forth, you could be capturing both ISOs and then cut them back together if you, if you, if you don't want to have it be it only a screen capture. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And in the Windows world, there's a thing called your phone that is in all the latest version of Windows. You link your phone to it, and then you can see, you can actually control your phone, do all your stuff from your phone, and you have the little uh, version of it that has the actual screen of your phone, which you can float around on a window here and capture that as well and record what's going on on the screen there as well. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on Bluetooth 5.2 and ladder with an LC3 audio codec as the basis for wireless mic transmitter receive. Better than 2.4 gigahertz systems? And he's got a link there. Mickey? Uh, Bluetooth um, also runs on 2.4 gigahertz. And the Bluetooth uh, 
standard as it is, is really designed for consumer use. So it is highly compressed. So that throws it out of of the picture for any professional use. It, it is also um, latent. Uh, they say low latency, but anything above six milliseconds is unusable in many situations. So I'd say Bluetooth is... I don't see Bluetooth ever being usable in a professional uh, scenario. Next question. Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin comes to us next. In Mac OS Photos app, is there a way to template a crop so that the identical framing can be applied to multiple photos taken as a burst? I go, Jason. You know, I thought I could do this, and um, I can't seem to get it to work with Burst. I know you can copy edits and then apply them to lots of other things, but um, yeah, the the C key maybe very rapidly uh, should retain the crop, but as far as pasting it, I can't figure out how to get it to work. Guy? Yeah, I don't think you could do it in the Photos app itself. Uh, you, you can do adjustments uh, like color and things like that to multiple just by selecting them and saying paste, paste multiple. But uh, the crop isn't one of the features. And it's probably a good thing for because you take portrait, you take landscape, and a lot of times you wouldn't want to accidentally crop uh, arbitrarily. Uh, you can do edit with. So if you have another app like uh, Canva or Photoshop and then run a script in, in one of those to automate cropping multiple images. So I'm pretty sure you're going to have to do edit with, kick it out, save, and it'll update automatically in the photos library from the third party. And uh, I don't know if shortcuts will do this, but Automator definitely will. <laughs> so so I've de- we've definitely done this where you just process hundreds of images and have them all cut to a certain way, center cut, uh, square, or whatever you want, however you want to crop it. Um, so I don't, I haven't tried Automator on, is it still running on the most current OS? I think it still it exists, is. but it's mostly put into shortcuts, but you can actually get to it if you you really look. Yeah, so I, I don't know how to do that in shortcuts, but I know that Automator, we used to do that all the time, is have it crop things for us and crop hundreds of images and just let it run over lunch and come back and it was done. So um, so take a look at that or an Apple script. Uh, but I don't think, you, to go back to your original question, I don't think that, I don't know of a way to do it in photos, but there are ways to do it even without other apps. Now, I will admit, that most of the time when I process this, I use Photoshop and I use it scripting or it's um, automation tools. In fact, I made a whole product with those long ago. So, uh, so those are so that that's that's how I would probably approach it these days. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I apologize for this being slightly unrelated, but I saw this the other day on the phone on the iPhone. If you take a selection of photos from your Photos app and transfer them to the uh, files app, you can then, um, there are certain functions, not crop, unfortunately, that you can apply to a bunch of photos simultaneously inside files on iOS. And the trick is, is down in the lower, I should be using all the tips we had from the last question, how to record the screen. But in the lower right-hand corner, there's the little three dots. And once you select a bunch of things, you can hit those three dots. And like, for example, one of the commands that's in this list is remove background. So if you had like a hundred images and you wanted to pull the heads out of, uh, you know, those, you hit that one button and you've done it to all of them simultaneously. And But the trick is, is you have to copy the photos from photos into files and then you can do it inside of files. I just heard that the other day and I thought it was really interesting. Next question. 
Next one comes to us from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. Is there something that does most of what the XR18 and the XR12 Behringers do at a similar price, but without the iPad software required part, a sort of all-in-one? Ronnie? So the Allen Heath uh, CQ12T and CQ18T has a touchscreen that uh, do this, and there are other mixers as well. Uh, the Allen Heath ones are just uh, hitting the market, so I would definitely try those. Go ahead, Mickey. And if what you're looking for is a uh, hardware physical fader control, both the XR12 and the XR18 support uh MIDI control, sorry, the specifically the X-Touch natively and through um, their edit app, their specific edit applications, generic uh, Mackie control, capable MIDI controls will work as well. Next question. And by the way, the last one came from the QR drop. So we're encouraging the use of that whenever possible. And next one comes from Lucas Herzog in Mainz, Germany. Panel discussion uh, with on-site and remote contributors. What is your preferred way of getting the remote panelists integrated with the on-site ones? Displays on the stage, perhaps? Go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, well, we tend to prefer um, Zoom ISO for this, and then that gives us the ability to put it into our switcher system and then send it to any screens or projections that we want. Um, we recently did this as an event um, where there was a panel in Belfast and then a panel in uh, LA, and it was all run through a webinar, and then we used RN to scrape out their panelists uh, and then send them back a camera feed. And we could then take their audio and take their, their video and put it to a number of different screens. So if we wanted to have a, a screen per panelist, then we could uh, arrange that if we wanted to have just you know a, a main cut um, uh, onto one screen. Then we did that. We preferred, at least in our instance, to put onto screens rather than the projection, uh, partially because then our panelists could walk anywhere on the stage and interact and move around if they wanted to without worrying about getting into the into the way of projection. But that's the method we've used a number of times with uh, most most kind of way. Zoom ISO is the easiest way we've done it, but the, using Skype and NDI also going into software switcher has, been, has worked well. But the ability to get into cable has been very useful for us. Ronnie? Uh, within a similar thing, uh, of course, having a display on screen that uh, uh, people on, on screen or on the stage uh, can see, that's that's cool. But we had, uh, another time we put, actually put a display in the sofa uh, and had that sit beside the two other guests in the sofa. So that had a really good impact. Lucas? Yeah, I asked this because we did this yesterday and uh, we did it like you said, Ronnie, we had a kind of a little sofa and the display on it because we had to do something uh, um, for the live audience as well and the customer actually wanted to yeah to have a focus on the live audience rather than the stream so uh, I just wondered if there if you had some ideas about that because they first wanted to do it on projection and then you have this large projection over the panelists it was kind of a lecture hall and have this huge face of the remote panelist and I, I think that looks rather silly so um, yeah I just wanted to ask if you have some ideas about that go ahead Richard 
Yeah, one of the reasons we put it onto screens on the side of the stage is for that in-person audience experience because integrating them onto the stage um, uh, where the panellists can then interact with it is nice, but I find it gets very, very distracting very quickly um, in that the now, especially if you're running both events where you're, you've got a camera trying to train onto the on-stage talent um, for an offline audience, now that, that panellist is moving all around in, into different ways. So what we've done is give a comfort monitor straight in front to the stage uh, close to the camera position so that the people on stage can look out and be able to see the the online talent on the screen underneath the camera but then the the audience are just getting to kind of iMag style st- on, on either side of the stage or anywhere around yeah in a very similar way the way we've built these in the past is if we have the um if we have the stage here and we have our participants here we oftentimes will fly the the screens forward so they'll go here and then we put confidence monitors here. It looks, it feels a little weird. And sometimes the screens are a little bit further back, but we basically, when they look over one way or the other, they're not looking at the screens, but it looks like they're looking at the screens um, from a camera position. And so when they're looking one way or the other, um, both of them can look that way. It, it's a little odd because we give confidence monitors on both sides and both people can look either way to make that actually work. And then we, and then we split it, but we put folks up on either side. We try not to put them above because it feels really, as was stated earlier, feels really weird um, to have the, the panelists above everybody else. It's better to have them on side monitor. Our, our opinion is side projection. Completely agree with Richard also is that we, we don't want screens behind. I, I generally don't want screens behind people ever. Like, so, you know, so when we put LED walls in, we put, we, we put a, we want the LED wall to start nine feet high. Um, so that people can walk in front because LED walls are kind of a disaster. Um, you know, so unless you're willing to spend the money that's required to get to a 1.5 mil screen, it's not, you just can't put them back there. You're going to get, you're going to get Murray, you're going to get all kinds of other things that are unhappy. So, um, so we, those are the, that's kind of how we structure that. A couple little things about that is if, depending on how much you have control over the panelists that are coming in remotely, um, one thing that we tend to do when we do events is we have the camera up high and we have the person's head just a little lower than the camera. What that does is it pulls their head, it pulls their chin up a little bit. And most people look better that way when they get their chin pulled up a little bit. The one time we don't do this is when we do exactly what I just talked about. And so we bring the camera down just a little, and we did this by accident. So you can do two things. You can either bring the camera down if you're on a teleprompter, or you simply have the camera and you actually put the the audience on a screen below it. And what that's going to do is it's going to bring the eye line down below that. It's a little haunting, but extremely effective on a large screen <laughs> because what happens is, is it brings the eye line straight at the audience. Um, so that when the eye line tucks down a little bit, if they, if the, if the eye line goes up, it looks like they're looking over when they're in their video, it looks like they're looking over the audience when the eye line drops a little bit. And again, we found this out by, because our teleprompter wasn't working. <laughs> and then we were, when we saw the pictures of, of a CEO, of a big company looking kind of down at everybody, it has a really kind of Wizard of Oz kind of feel to it. So you got to decide whether you want that or not, but it feels much more like they're looking at you. Um, and then as you probably know, Lucas, the hardest part of this is not the video, it's the audio. I'm getting the audio right and getting that working. We really spend a lot of time on the audio to make sure that that's going to work. We're using typically a Dugan Auto Mix to kind of push back and forth between those mics, um, but it is something that has to tune for every room. There's no... Uh, there's no shake and bake to make that actually work. So, um, yeah. Anyway, next question. 
Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas says, "Why would the game? Why would game consoles be exempt from the California right to repair law? Is it a content security issue?" He wonders. Courtney. Why, yes, it is, and they have a stronger lobbying group yeah, because <laughs> Microsoft are better. <laughs> and Sony uh, are selling those consoles at a loss. Every console that yeah. you buy costs them more to make than it does to sell, and they can derive all their income from the you know IP that you yeah. download on it and play it. So they don't want people to hack those things, and uh, so they don't want you to open them up and putting in hacks that could uh, that happened for a long time in the game industry before uh, you know it became isolated to do two just just two manufacturers or maybe three if you include Nintendo. Oh and 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 how much do they how much do they derive from each game? <gasps> right, 30%. 30 percent no apple gets 30 percent no no Everybody else gets about 40 percent yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think i think sony's is 30 i think a lot of them i think apple and google pick 30 percent because that's what the game consoles were taking like it was literally like this arbitrary well they're taking 30 percent we can take 30 percent uh yeah I, yeah i think it it all i mean all almost all laws are tightly wound to who has the best lobbyists uh, next question Next one comes to us from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Is there a way on Mac OS to save a preset arrangement of Finder Windows apps browsers on two displays? I spend so much time doing it over and over again. Jason? Yeah, there are a number of ways to do this. The the first way is just with shortcuts. Shortcuts, you can simply, these are these are actually like just straight in the gallery, tile the last four windows. And if you go into edit, you can see how this is being done. But that that place is 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 very self-explanatory. You'll, you'll see that part of it. You can also assign a window and um, assign it to any desktop you want. So the combination of those two will absolutely do it. The other way to do it is with better snap tool. That works pretty well, too. Good, Ronnie. Yeah, like uh, Jason said, better snap tool. And uh, we use an app called Magnet, which can also be using hotkeys and um, even uh, uh, just make a, a, a script either in, in uh, shortcuts or uh, Apple script. And you can have that uh, app uh, place all the windows where you want it. And uh, uh, we also use that app to easily snap the windows to right side, top, left, etc. Next question. TG Phil in uh, Gersvold in Tromsø, Norway. How do you generally wait before? How long do you generally wait before updating mission critical equipment? And he's talking about Macs, iPhones, and so forth to the latest operating system. Richard, yeah, um, usually just don't don't update. Um, but more sensible uh, kind of answer is if you really, really have to. So if there's something important um, in the new update that allows you to do new work or better work or create a better workflow and you have enough time before when you need that piece of really important equipment uh, to troubleshoot any kind of issues that might come out of it, then usually that's uh, when I would update. So basically waiting as long as possible for something really, really important. And then if there's a real need, a real kind of thing that you're going to get out of it, then update uh, then. Um, Just I remember about five years ago doing a, a final cut project in the middle of um, uh, kind of recording a panto um, for, for someone that we had to record in, in our theatre and I, I updated to the new version of Final Cut for fun and then all the other libraries that I had all had to be updated and I had to wait to update each computer that we were using to update each piece of Final Cut. It just it, it added about another half a week onto the, the, the chain of the project just from updating on a whim. Uh, go Mickey. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, Richard. Uh, only update if there is something you're unable to do, work that you're not, not able to fulfill without updating. Uh, for us, it usually comes with buying a new machine. Um, for the longest time, for, I don't know, like eight, nine, ten years, we stayed with Snow Leopard because it just worked. And we could do all the work that we need on, on that OS. I still know studios that are running uh, large SSL and um, and Neve boards that are still on Snow, Snow Leopard until now because it gets the job done. Um, if, if you don't need need anything in, in the in the new version of the OS, don't update. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of like you're, you're treating your computer like an appliance, right? Like it's the appliance and the appliance does the thing. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I agree. If it if it's working now, don't update it on any mission critical stuff. What I like to do is is I'll take uh, last year's hardware. If it's Mac, and, you know, Apple has a tendency to orphan a lot of their previous hardware. So a lot of times, the newest operating system won't work on the four year old model so that you can put it on. But on in Windows, I'll keep these cheaper PCs around, and I'll I'll download the latest version of the operating system, put them on this, and try them out before uh, for a long time before I put it on something else. And if, like I say, if it's working, don't do it. But if you're having a lot of buggy problems with the current version uh, on your mission critical stuff, uh, you might be able, you might want to upgrade to see if the the new version fixes the bugs that the old version didn't fix. Good, Bill. I have a two-stage process. First, I ask, where am I? Am I in the middle of something that's mission critical and I don't want to break? And if I'm in the middle of something like that, I stay, avoid them like the plague. If I am okay and I have enough time to know that if I if this upgrade breaks something, I can go back into my uh, saved images and re-put it in in a day and I'm back where I was. I've only had to do that maybe twice in the last 10 years. So it's been pretty stable. The other thing is where is Apple and or the vendor of the software I'm considering upgrading? Some of them are notorious in terms of being slow to get updates done. So if something comes for me from like Universal Audio, I've run into too many circumstances where they were a month or two months behind. So if the process I'm using involves them, I will delay more than I would. But if it's coming from Apple and it's not a major point update, I have found that I've been very successful with just going ahead and doing it if I have a couple of days to make sure I can back out of it if it's a problem. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, I agree with uh, everything that was already said. And one additional thing, I uh, if the systems are connected to the Internet, the point to update for me is usually when the OS is running out of uh, support. So when there's no security updates, if you treat your stuff like an appliance, like uh, you ha- still have Snow Leopard on something, uh, I would assume that that system is not connected to the Internet. So... That's not that big of a problem, but yeah, so if they are connected to the internet, I'd stay on the OS that is still gets uh, security updates. And a quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hour. You can put them either into Makana or you can use the little QR code or just hit askofficehours.com. In fact, you can just save askofficehours.com and, uh, and click on that anytime you have a question and it will go into a system that we can bring into the, to the actual show. So uh, go ahead and ask those questions and let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Next one comes to us from Hasma Kajar, a friend in Cape Town, South Africa. My Sidekick in-ear monitor 3 broke off at the ear tip area, and Sidekick 2 audio is much lower in one ear, much lower. I have tried in-ear, and they are less expensive, and hopefully they last longer. Comments? Mickey? Yeah, I'd say um, uh, devices that uh, 
you put on talent, like uh, in-ear monitors and lavalier microphones and headset mics uh, at a certain point, like for me, I would consider them expendables. If they go on talent, they will get they will get abused. So I would consider them expendables for your uh, in your. I don't know if it if it broke at the if the actual if just the tip broke or the stem that you hooked the tip on is what broke. Um, if it's just the, the the tip itself, you could easily buy replacements for those. Um, regarding N-Ear, I did get, I think, 20 or 24 units of the N-Ears a couple months ago, and they're great. Uh, I don't know who actually manufactures them, if it's N-Ear, and they're rebranded by uh, Bubblebee, or if there's a third party that that is the actual OEM. But they're pretty much the same thing, just slightly different uh, uh, termination on the cables. Good, Bill. I've gone through three N-ears because of my own stupidity. What you don't want to do is let them uh, lose track of them, let them fall on the floor, and roll a office chair over the top of them if you're very heavy. That is definitely bad for them <laughs> and will break them. Uh, but if you take care of them, I have had the last two that uh, I have a primary and a backup. One's in my ear right now. The other one's in its little triangular case over there just in case. And those have lasted me for a year and a half with no issues. So if you don't put a lot of stress on them and treat them well. They should last a very long time. I have to admit, I use these linsoles uh, in, in this room. When I do higher profile stuff and some of the other things I do, I still use the um, sidekicks for those, but they don't get used as often because of that. And the linsoles I slowly wore out because I wear them probably six hours a day. Um, they slowly wear out, but doesn't hurt because it's only for $40 $50. or <laughs> $50. So if, they, they, if I have to replace them once a year, it's fine. Uh, next question. TJ Asher, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I need an updated modem router to go with my newly installed fiber internet. Congratulations, TJ. My existing router keeps having performance issues. What does the panel recommend for a good router that can allow me to split off my Internet of Things network from my data network? Mickey? I'm a fan of the um, the NetGate appliances. They run PFSense, which is a, a, a firewall OS that I really love. Um, I would recommend... Either the 2100, 4100, or 6100. If you need, if you want to be future proof yourself uh, for with a 10 gig, uh, I'd go with the 6100, but not gig. I got a good Courtney. Yeah, I like the Netgear Nighthawk for uh, uh, the new Wi Fi 6. Uh, but what I do for my Internet of Things is I just take a cheap uh, 2.4 gigahertz only router and I plug it into one of the ports on the uh, Nightgear and run all the, uh, give it a different SSID because a lot of the new routers have uh, dual or triple frequency with the same SSID. They share the same SSID and your Internet of Things, uh, like anything that doesn't have to do any video streaming, like your LED lights or uh, your smart assistant uh, speaker assistant those kind of things. I put them all on a single 2.4 gigahertz router and just keep them to that and they connect through the other router. So as long as you don't have to have any high bandwidth stuff going on for the IoT stuff, I put them on a separate 2.4 because a lot of them get confused when they're sharing the same SSID as the higher frequency um, uh, higher frequency radios and they don't work at those higher frequencies. Ronnie? Don't mention if this is a professional uh, environment. I guess it's uh, at home. Uh, we use a lot of Ubiquiti's uh, equipment, and the, the Dream Machine is uh, 
is uh, probably the one I would recommend. Uh, at the office, we use uh, the Dream Machine Pro, which is really, really quick. And uh, remember, if you have a slower rotor, you can disable a few of the uh, functionality, like uh, deep packet inspection, etc., to increase the performance. Lucas? Yeah, I agree with Mickey there. Uh, PFSense is a great firewall system. Uh, he wrote um, modem router, so uh, I, I would recommend against that, actually. I would have a modem that just does the modem stuff and then a router slash firewall that does all the rest. And that would be the case with the uh, PFSense boxes. If you uh, want to save a little bit of money and have a spare machine lying around, uh, PFSense uh, actually has a community version, uh, the open source version, which just uh, runs on a lot of machines. Uh, if you uh, cap at one gigabit routing, uh, most older machines would be working. Something like a Raspberry Pi is, is not enough to do one gigabit throughput. Uh, so, yeah. Next question. Brian Taylor comes in with another from the QR question drop. What is the real danger in disconnecting a drive without first unmounting it from the system properly? Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, if this is a spinning drive, uh, you risk um, the, the head not being parked properly and locked in place prior to you um, unplugging it. So if it, if the head is like freely moving around, it could uh, start to scratch up the actual platters inside the disc. So if this is uh, in both situations for for spinning discs and solid state drives, if in case the uh, OS or the, the system is in the middle of writing a file, that write will be disrupted and also um, end up with a, a corrupted uh, file. Courtney? Yeah, what Mickey said, if it's writing to the drive, you can corrupt the uh, file allocation table and you may not be able to access any of your files again. Yeah, it may, it may clip the header. <laughs> go ahead, uh, go ahead, uh, Jason. Yeah, and then to add on to that, it's not always clear whether or not an operating system is using write caching. Um, the, the Windows copy handler is among the worst, but not the only offender here. It also just is a safety measure to let you know that something else is using it, at least on the Mac. You're sitting when you hit eject, it goes, oh, by the way, did you still want to use this for logic or, or something like that? And then, oh, right, I should probably close that out before I do that. So it's, 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 a, good, it's a good habit to, to eject them first. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, up next. How do you want MidJourney to evolve in the future, and what is the comp competition? John? I think MidJourney should sell because they're not going to be able to compete with the W long term. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 man, it seems like they could do it, but I don't know. I, I think you're right that there's a certain weight that Adobe's bringing to a lot of these things. I, I did this crazy thing yesterday in Photoshop where someone said, I had a poster from somebody and I, it wasn't exactly 16 by nine or so it was like a little too short. And it was like a, just a crazy design. And I just selected the top part and said expand. It's like the bottom part said expand. It was seamless. And I was just like, that was, that would have taken me so long to like paint something in that looked like that or try to stretch something. There was a whole bunch of like, and it literally took a minute for me to do that. So I, I, I do think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see where all these go. Um, I, you know, I, I think with mid journey, the big thing is, is having it not feel like it's like you're, you're 
crazy cousin on drugs. And like, you know, it just, you know, like, you're just like, dude, man, like, just, just draw the thing I asked you to draw, you know, like, and, and so like, you know, like you're just, you're, uh, that's the problem really is that mid journey, I think as it gets more precise, we could do a lot more with it. If I can draw out things and say, this is where I want this, I want this here and this here and this here or whatever, be able to define things and have it give me a little bit more precision. I think that's the problem I have with mid journey. Sometimes you hit it just right. And you're like, this is the most amazing thing. And then you spend a half an hour trying to get it to do something simple. Um, those are the things that I think that they need to work through on it. And they all talk about it. I mean, they know that the, this is the next step for them. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle here on the panel. How would you get a video switchers multi-view into the X-Real Air's augmented reality glasses? Here's my question for you, Guy is how do you get it to turn on? <laughs> how do you get it to turn on? Like, I have it. Did, I, did you put the USB cable into a device? Okay, so you have to put the USB. So it's not like a... Because it in the, in, the instructions are horrible, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, the, like, I was like, it looked like I was supposed to be able to share or... It, it should have at least a screen pop up, like some kind of, like, I'm not getting any data kind of thing in there because, like, it's just black. So, yeah, you got to think of it as a as it's a it's a monitor. So right, you just right. plug it. You you got to give it power, and you got to give it a signal. So and you can do HDMI to. So this gets into your question. You can do HDMI to USB C. Is that the game? So that's that's where you need this little device. This is a forty nine dollar add on that gives you the HDMI to USB C. So you'll notice the cable now, that comes with it is USB C. So enable to put HDMI into there, you have to. Now, if I have cable. an HDMI cable to USB C cable. Will that so, work? like, if you just plug it into your MacBook, it, it, you'll see an image. Okay. All right, hold on. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah welcome to the we'll get a reaction shot here in a sec. But to another thing, uh, last night, uh, Jeremy Horn reached out to me on Discord, and he's like, how would I do this? And so I remembered that I had this cool little device, too, that's called a Axoon Cineview, which is a transmitter, HDMI transmitter. So you could hook this up to a multi-view. And then you can uh, broadcast to an iOS device. I was thinking so, about these too, these little easy casts. You know, these are like 10 feet, 30 feet, something like that. These are HDMI on either end. One sends, one receives, you know, that it's just wireless at that point. So nice. anyway. Yeah, so um, last night as I was playing with this, uh, I put it into an iPad and put the Axoon app. And if you're using it for a camera, Man, it's so cool because you have your LUTs, you have um, false color. So if you're out in the field and it's, you know, really bright, it, that's, a, that's the thing is you can put the shades on. So it has this cover. So they're augmented reality. But if you want to do more like virtual reality, you put the, the covers on. So that blocks out the sun. And now you have a 120 inch monitor out in the field, which can be pretty cool if it's prohibitive to carry around a big monitor so yeah were you able to plug them in alex i'm, I'm working on, I'm working on it my computers are all full of things so they, they it takes a second here for a second uh let's see you got the iphone 15 though right uh i do just hold plug on. it into the bottom of the no, iPhone i have this 15. This, uh, this um hold on so now i plugged it into my um let's see if I, I just and the problem is i have glasses on so this gets all harder so I still don't see anything. Like I haven't been able to get, oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. How do you operate the touch screen with your eyelashes? Best there's, there's the poster oh, frame for tomorrow's show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. That's cool. All right. And it turned off, but I don't know why. Anyway, um, there we go. 
<laughs> so it works. So we'll we'll play with it some more. It's it. I, I do say it. I don't did the did the um. I don't think I. I don't know where the the cover went. I don't remember seeing a cover when I opened it. Is it hidden somewhere in the box? I didn't see a cover. There's somewhere in there. Like, somewhere in there. I know they just look like this. Oh no. Oh, it's it's is it is it like felt covered? Does it is it like hard covered or? No, it's it this, it's a piece this, of plastic. I think it's I think it's in the box. This thing just popped out. I don't know if this is it or not. No, that's to cover the cables. Yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, um, okay. I, know, I was hoping your reaction would be more like "Wow," because that's everybody else's reaction that I it, have it's gone cool. out to lunch I, with and put them on. I, it, it, it's not. It's less "Wow" while my glasses are on. I have to put my contacts in to figure this out because it's like it's not super comfortable and I can't really like I have to um, and, I have to play with something. And, well, they do have adjustable diopter, don't they? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it. I think you need to put. No, I think they have. The, don't forget that there's buttons on the side to turn up the brightness too. So when you do get them fired up, there's three little buttons along the side. So if you never need to turn them off really fast to see what's going on in the, the real world, you can turn them off with the, the furthest button. I got to find that little cap too, because that, that'd be really useful. So, all right, more, more, this, we'll continue this conversation. If it comes up again, I, I will have played with it. I, I was like, I expected it to just turn on, at least show me like a blue screen or something going, you're on. But I, now I understand that it's just, it has to be plugged into something. So we'll. Well, there's one more piece to it. There's something called the beam. And if you plug it into the beam, then that that's like a whole nother thing that that's what can create um, its own little app. And basically what that does is it allows you to cast. So if you have well, like that's a, what it talks about in the, that's what it talks about in the, uh, in the booklet is the cast it. And I was like, I, like, I, and that's, that's the, why I put it on. And it was like waiting for some wireless thing to happen because I couldn't, the instructions are horrible. Like they, like, like, but so, um, but, but the, um, cause I was reading through it and it didn't make any, it didn't make any sense to me. So, um, now it makes more sense. All right. Well, we'll continue this conversation. It's cool. Anyway, well, it's, it's, it feels like a real thing. Like when you pick it up, it's not like cheap little, like it feels like a device, you know? So I'm, I am excited about it. I just, I just haven't, I couldn't figure out what it was. I, I, and I planned to ask Guy on the show and then he brought it up. <laughs> so it was very convenient. I was like, okay, what's going on here? All right. Next question. Uh, our friend Hasmak Gishar is back from Cape Town, have been off production for some time. So he's rusty, played with an ATEM Extreme and keying in a logo and in another session, keying in a keynote slide. Need a refresher on when to use downstream and upstream keys. Uh, Richard? Yeah, um, the terminology upstream and downstream keys can sometimes get people a bit confused, but it's really simple if you think of it as a river flowing towards the ocean. Uh, and your downstream key is the last thing uh, in that kind of uh, in that stream. It will be the last thing before it hits the audience, before it hits your encoder. So it's it will sit on top of everything else. Your upstream key will then be uh, it's further upstream, and therefore it will be more manipulated and change shot as you change, and nothing will sit on top of it. So at the moment, I have a um, a downstream key that I can draw on top of myself uh, very easily. And if I cut underneath it, and it's a little uh, thing of uh, IBC later on, um, you'll see that the switch, shot switches underneath that key. Um, upstream key then would sit um, before that and therefore um, it will change with those shots. So downstream key is really good for bugs and other things that you want to sit on top of everything else that you switch. And upstream key is really suitable for things that you want to sit on a particular shot and then will change like a slide. Good, Mickey. Yeah, exactly what Richard said. And just to add to that, usually in most situations, 
what you have in your upstream key would be content that is critical to the actual program itself. Say if you're keying uh, a person on a green screen doing a chroma key uh, over a background, uh, that is that is critical to the uh, to the program. So you would want that to be part of your your actual program cut, your clean feed. Um, downstream key uh, is oftentimes limited to things that are in, that are not uh, integral to the program itself, like say a lower thirds graphics or say b- bugs that you keep uh, keep uh, on air all the time. Um, they they're not critical for the actual content that you're cutting, so you keep usually keep that on the downstream key. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, and uh, if you want to have the clean feed recording, uh, that's exactly what uh, Mickey said. You would, uh, for the extreme, for instance, you can you assign one of the outputs to the clean feed, and then you have no downstream uh, graphics, but the upstream uh, stuff will still be there. So if we want to uh, be able to uh, 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 redo uh, lower thirds because we made typos, we will often do them on the downstream key to be able to have the clean feed later on. Yeah, and and I mean the way to to think about it from a, from how the processor is working. The reason that there's more upstream keys than downstream keys is that there is um, there is essentially one video pipeline that's going here. The downstream keys are separate layers. So this is oops, let's do this again. Hold on. Um, the downstream keys themselves, these are layers that sit on top. And so they require more processing, which is why having a lot of downstream keys is a big deal because it, it's it's a different, la- this is doing compositing in real time. Um, the advantage of an upstream key is it's constantly, as was said before, burning into this this main layer. And so from a pure processing perspective, it's important that it keeps on getting dropped into that. There are also different features. And so you have, you don't have chroma, for instance, uh, a chroma key inside of your downstream key, I don't think. Uh, I don't think that that, I think you need to be in upstream as long as, as well as DVE. And so so there's certain things that you can't put on top of those things. Um, and then, of course, as Mickey was saying, you have um, a clean feed says, I'm just going to ignore these layers and put them out. And the other thing to notice is, you know, paying attention to which is on top downstream one and downstream two, because they are, again, you'll understand they are layers being stacked on top of each other. And the clean feed does simply lets you strip two layers out as you go or four layers, depending on how many, how many uh, downstream keys you might have. Next question. Next one comes to us from TJ Asher in Minneapolis. I've been seeing a lot of MSG Sphere and YouTube posted on YouTube recently. The Sphere claims to have 167,000 speakers. How could you manage that many speakers and how would you be routing sound? Could they be in large groups, he wonders? Um, the I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I can try to find out. <laughs> so, uh, but the, uh, the, I don't know how that, that actually works there, but the, the, these are a lot of speakers because they really wanted to create that immersive sound. And, and it, it is, I believe, in kind of an object, it's object-based um, system so that they really have the resolution to move those through. The other problem that they have is that the screen is very large and it's got LED across the entire thing. So all of the speakers have to be fairly small um, to fit into, um, you know, to be able to blow through that process and, and make it actually work. So it's, um, we'll see if we can get some more information or even somebody from MSG to come on and talk about it a little bit. Um, I know a couple people over there. So, so we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll play that by ear and see what we can do. Next question. Next one comes to us from J.B. Wendell in Thailand, and it's another QR drop question. What essential items would you prioritize when assembling a basic grip kit with a budget of $500, excluding C-stands? What would you purchase and in what quantities? Ronnie? 
Um, I would uh, have sandbags. I, I'm not taking uh, a stance about quantities. That differs uh, a lot between the type of uh, operations you're running and what the client needs. But sandbags, uh, some kind of apple boxes to, to have people standing on or, or uh, being higher or lower. Clamps, a lot of clamps, a uh, lot of gaffer's tape. Um, some kind of uh, equipment to flag off uh, or, or scrim uh, light. Uh, maybe uh, reflectors, diffusers. We we use um, kind of moving carpets or sound carpet that are pretty big uh, with with um, holes in it, so that we can have a white side if we need to add light, and a black side if we need to have negative fill. Uh, gloves, of course, if you're going to carry all this stuff around. Um, safety cables. Um, uh, we call them um, the extension cords uh, is the English word. Um, uh, bungee cords or, or um, uh, those uh, straps that you put around stuff. Um, maybe some, um, maybe some uh, pony clips is also called and um, uh, spud adapters so that you can convert uh, baby pins to uh, uh, junior pins, etc. Go to Mickey. Yeah, Ronnie covered a lot of what I was going to say, but I will certainly emphasize uh, sand and shot bags. Um, absolute necessity on set, on every set, uh, along with Apple boxes. Um, 500 US is quite tight. So what I would recommend is get your sand, uh, sh shot bags, Apple boxes, and then uh, acquire on an as-needed basis. Um, because again, like 500 US is really tight. Go... Um, also bear in mind uh, if you're going to carry like hundreds of kilos of, of sand and shot, ba shot bags, you'd probably want a cart and also some sort of vehicle, a truck or a, a large van. Good, Bill. Been great suggestions. Now, the one thing I'd, I'd elevate safety stuff to the top, and they already said sandbags and things like that for making sure your stands don't fall over. I would add to that uh, standard safety cables, which are usually a piece of aircraft wire with a clip on the end. Anytime you put something above the heads of people that could possibly come loose, you want a safety cable on that just in case the worst happens and it comes loose. Um, I would say that if I didn't have anything else and I just needed the bare minimums, it would be gaffers tape and two or three colors because you use that on almost every shoot somewhere. I would also uh, bring in clips, um, you know, grip clips, which are the standard spring clips you can get from hardware stores all the way down to C37s or, or clothes pins because they're really useful keeping little things out of the way uh, and all the way up to Mafer and um, Cardellini clamps and things like that. You always run into circumstances where you have to put something somewhere you didn't expect, and those kind of tools really help. Those would be kind of on the top of my list. Good, Lucas. Yeah, I think most of it has been said. I'd add uh, articulating arms, magic arms, something like that. Uh, we use those a lot. Courtney? Uh, yeah, a set of flags and diffusion, you know, like these Matthews flags that you can get fairly cheap, different sizes. And uh, for diffusion, uh, you can go cheap these days. Now that most lights are LED lights, you don't have to worry about melting it. But shower curtain, get some shower curtain liners that you can pick up at any bed, bath, and beyond that's going out of business and uh, uh, use those for diffusion. Uh, they work quite well. and They're pretty large, and you can cut them down to size or use them full size for uh, diffusing your lights. And since you can now adjust the color temperature on the lights, you don't have to worry too much about the uh, color shift in any of those shower curtain liners. But most of them are pretty neutral 
color in their vinyl and they fold up fairly smallly and uh, don't use them in front of incandescent lights so they could melt. Chris? Years ago, a good friend of mine showed up on set and he had bought one of those cute little bucket canvas bags and he had gathered a few items and you know, put them in his little bag and he showed up on the set and he set it down and the gaffer looked over at him and he said, careful, the next step is a 510 grip truck. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. You, you start you start small and then you you know, I have Mafer I have Mafers and clamps and everything else up one C stand here, just just stacked up uh Cardellinis. I love Cardellinis. So I so I have lots of them um to grab onto stuff. The um one thing that that I that I really like a lot when I'm traveling is you can buy sandbags that don't have any sand in them. And then so that you buy the sand at any hardware store when you arrive. I will tell you if you take sand out of the beach in the Seychelles over two days, it will start to smell really bad. <laughs> Go ahead, guy. Yeah, walking through one of these cool videos on um, YouTube that just shows behind the scenes, you could see, as we discussed, a lot of the different um, Cardellinis and Magic Arms, but it, it really depends on if you're using lighting that is going to be uh, the sun, <laughs> or in which case you're going to need some of these larger flags and some of these items to, to block light and netting, uh, silks and diffusion, but then also power, you know, the, uh, all the way down to a, a generator, or when is it appropriate to rent this stuff or have a guy just come out with that has everything that you're going to need versus trying to buy everything, or maybe do it once where you have somebody else come out and you see what they actually use like look at all these batteries i mean that's a huge investment just in batteries alone then there's the generator oh and now there's an ad because it's <laughs> you know, all right we'll jump out of that but you get the idea is it's better to rent and have somebody else come to the table with everything that you need versus um buying 500 bucks is going to go really fast i mean just even in power but yeah again back to lighting the light mats are really cool and popular these days uh, and then aperture i'm seeing on a lot of trucks these days as well and that can eat up your your budget super fast good running yeah and and uh, in addition to that the pictures guy just showed um a lot of previous Old uh, pictures will show you a lot of CTBs and CT, CTO and CT uh, um, filters, which is not used as much today since we have LED uh, fixtures that can be adjusted to the, to the temperature. So just be aware of that as well. Next question. Alexander Knight, Port Coquitlam, BC, Canada. I'm looking for a bigger 8x8 HDMI matrix, preferably one that can support 4K 60 hertz. Alex, are you still using your monoprice Blackbird, and has it been reliable for you? Yeah, Mickey. I don't know. This is uh, directed at Alex, but um, I'd say I would recommend, like, while you're ahead, um, shift over to to using an SDI-based system. Uh, I would... HDMI is cumbersome, less reliable, and doesn't really scale well in a uh, production environment. So before you move up to a much larger HDMI-based router, I'd highly consider um, going with SDI. Yeah, there is some point where I will um, move. I actually bought the switcher to move to SDI, and then we embedded it into our podcast recording system so i did so it just became part of another system so i i, I did, never made the turn um but i if i did this all again i would definitely do it in sdi to be honest um and the uh that i have all this hdmi here uh the, the blackbird sits right here uh i use it every day uh it's super effective it's particularly effective when you open up the web interface so i i didn't use it i kept on having trouble getting it to 
see things, getting it to work correctly, do all these other things. But what you can do once you get the web interface in is you can open it up and you can force the inputs to be looking for certain things. You can be setting those up to, to really stabilize the, that process and you can do everything over the web. You can make all the routing and choices and everything else. So when you open that up, the Blackbird becomes super useful. If you try to use it as a piece of, a, as an appliance when it arrives, not useful at all. So, um, but it overall, it's been pretty good. I will say the SDI route is more expensive. So, um, you know, I think that this Blackbird dropped a lot since I bought it. I don't know how much it is now. I know I bought it at like $900. I think the last time I looked, it was like $500. So $500 for eight by eight routing, it's going to cost you a fair bit more to get it like a 20 by 20 router from Blackmagic. So, um, so those are the other things to think about there. Next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City looks like his next business question. Can the panel recommend a Mac-based solution for scanning and organizing business paperwork? SnapScan, Doxy, other? Jason? Far and away, the best hardware is the ScanSnap IX. Um, I had a 500 for a long time and a 1500 after that. They are, they are just superior. As far as software is concerned, the ScanSnap app is fine. But honestly, getting a good naming convention and just having a little bit of discipline is, is the very best way to, to organize business PDFs. Good, 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 Bill. I owned a lot of scanners back in the early days. I haven't owned one for probably 10 years. And the reason is I use one of my two phones for everything. I actually have two iPhones that I carry, my personal phone and a business phone. Anytime I get any piece of paper that has anything to do with the business, I shoot it on the phone. The, the Photos app can translate that into text and a bunch of things. And it's just real easy. I know where everything is. It's all in my business phone, period. Good, Chris. I will also say that the Notes app on your phone has a PDF scanner built into it. If you actually look at all the icons at the bottom of the screen, one of them is a camera, and you're like, oh, what's this do? And it says scan PDF. It it does a really good job of going, oh, here's the paper, and it corner pins it, and it's pretty impressive. I, I just, when I did my tax estimates the other day, all the documents I sent to my CPA, I just scanned them with my phone. Courtney? Yeah, I use my printer, so check your printer. I have a brother um, duplex printer, and the new scanners will scan both sides in one pass of uh, double-sided business documents, and with an auto feeder, you can just throw a stack of double-sided you know, contracts or something in there, and it scans it. I have this problem with my tax guy, too. Scans all those double pages, creates a PDF with uh, each page in its proper order, and uh, easy peasy, you just have to find drivers that work with your Mac uh, for that brother uh, uh, multifunction printer. And they're pretty cheap laser Good printer. Ronnie? Uh, I tried the the new updated version of uh, ChatGPT, which is uh, really awesome. It's not on a Mac. It's uh, I use it just on the phone. I'm a colleague, Yetel. Um, did a test uh, earlier today with, uh, with the upload directly uh, on the app, and that was uh, mind-blowing what he could do. Uh, so I would check out uh, ChatGPT Chat as well. Yeah, and I've used uh, ScanSnap for a lot of paperwork. What's really nice is you can put a whole bunch of stuff in there and just go away and come back, and it's all it's all been ingested. Um, but generally, 90% of the work that I've done is all my phone. I just take pictures of things exactly like everybody else. It's The, the phone is now high enough resolution. It does a pretty good job. Next question. Hasma Kajar is back from Cape Town. iPhone 15 cases. Peak designed a cutout for the action button and now have a program to dispatch a button or exchange. What about cases and USB-C cables? What's been the experience with iPhone 15 cases? 
Um, on the three cases that I've tested so far, none of them allow me to put a, any USB cable in except for the Apple one. So the Apple USB cable will, will go in fine. No third-party case will, will work so far, including the Peak one. Thank you, Hosmok. Um, the, uh, so the Peak... Um, I was sent a couple other ones, and all of them I have to peel open the the. Um, so basically, what I try to do is I'm just use what I'm moving away from is using that cable as much as I can, unless I'm going to put it into a rig to record to a drive. Um, but what I'm what I found myself doing is just simply like all of my third party ones are just a little too big, and you can't force them in. So uh, so that's been the problem. I have been thinking of correcting it with a Dremel. So, so the, uh, you know, so I have, you know, so I'm just gonna, so my, uh, I'm digging, I'm spelunking. I don't know exactly where my Dremel tool is, but I'm planning to spelunk in my, in my, uh, my garage over the weekend and find the Dremel tool and then fix it. It's really only like a millimeter or two. Like it, it, if I just open it up by a, a millimeter or two and I'll probably post it like, Hey, this is the way it came. This is what I did to it. And this is now working because <laughs> I know it'll work with a Dremel. Uh, go ahead, Chris. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that a lot of times in our industry, we uh, uh, feel that the solve for everything is B&H or Amazon. And sometimes it's go out in your garage, find a tool, you know, find, go find your Dremel. If you don't own, an, own a Dremel, you should. It may not be that hard to just... Make that hole a it's, little it's a bit 10 minute bigger. Problem. It's a 10-minute yeah. problem to fix it, yeah. It's just, it'll look a little, <laughs> it'll take a little while to make it look like it, I meant to do it. <laughs> it doesn't have to. There is a thing called craftsmanship. We can all practice it. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jason. Um, yeah, OWC's USB-C and Thunderbolt cables actually work perfectly with, with all the native cases. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Today in Austin is an annular solar eclipse. Why is this not as big a deal as the total solar eclipse, and what are your plans for the next one? How do you watch them, and do you use glasses, phone recording, and so forth? I think the annular is tomorrow. Let's, let's yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, annular is in California tomorrow and other places as well. Uh, total, there's a difference. Total, you get to see the corona. It's the one on the left over here. And annular is, you see, it doesn't quite cover the whole area of the sun, so you have this burning ring of fire, as Johnny Cash says. So uh, that's why the annulars aren't as popular, because you don't see the full corona, because it doesn't completely block out the sun. The uh, total eclipse is coming uh, through Texas, I think, in uh, when is it, March of next year. April. Good. April. Jason, April. thank you. Jason, thank you everybody. Yeah, step one, get your day right. Uh, step two, annulars are more common. It'll be much less exciting if you go do it today. Uh, next question. Hasma Gajar at Cape Town's back again, building multi-purpose studio in an in-person, two-folks-seated, no-desk-or-table scene. And they are in conversation and inviting questions from attendees and our participants. What mic setup is the best? Boom lavalier headsets? What? what Mickey? Uh, depends on the program programming that you're trying to put on, and if you're okay with uh, visibly seeing the um, the microphones in a frame. Uh, if you're okay with that, then I would probably go with a dynamic broadcast microphone like an RE20. Um, if not, uh, depending on how your room sounds, if the room sounds good um, and it's not reflective, I'd probably go with a hypercardioid like a uh, like a pair of CMC 641s or a Sennheiser MKH50s right outside of frame. Um, aside from that. Uh, probably go with uh, lavaliers. I go ahead, Richard. 
Yeah, um, you never disagree with Mickey on an audio question, uh, and I won't. Uh, but I would also say um, all of them. Personally, I uh, the, if you've got no budget, of which you do not mention the budget has much, so fatal mistake. Um, I would buy as many different options as you can, and then try them for the environment, and also have them there as backups. So I would have overhead boom, I would have lavaliers, and I would have kind of a, um, the different mics built into the set if there's a set as well around you, because there's never ever a good solution for losing your audio, uh, Mitchell. Good running. Uh, I would go for boom if the audio in the room is good. But we had the situations where the client or the people being recorded or, or streamed would like to have a kind of podcast feeling. And then we use podcast microphones on a normal, uh, uh, normal tripod. Uh, that is also uh, uh, possible. But make sure you have, uh, like uh, both Mickey and, and Richard said, make sure you have backup uh, audio uh, microphone as well. And with all studios, make sure that it, it really is the the the, roof, the walls and the floor and the ceiling that will define what uh, what mic you can use. <laughs> so keep that in mind. Uh, a quick reminder that tomorrow we have the panelist meeting. If you go to officehours.global/panelist, you can sign up and join us for that meeting. That's usually like a little bit of a nuts and bolts conversation about uh, being on the panel. We are looking for new panelists, so if you're interested, uh, you can go ahead and sign up. Whether you can show up tomorrow or not, uh, go ahead and sign up there. And of course, Sunday is introspection, uh, so stay tuned for that. And let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and we are going to talk about IBC. Of course, we covered IBC this year, and the uh, our European team uh, put that together and um, did an amazing job. And so what they're going to do is break down for us a little bit about what it took to actually cover IBC. And for this, I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to Richard to take it away. Go ahead, go ahead Richard. Thanks, Alex. Um, so yes, uh, we're joined today by a number of the different team uh, members from from IBC um, in, in many of the different departments. And there's also a whole load of other team members who are in the show today who are actually running the show. So um, uh, the, to the team who are on the panel, I, I say, you know, jump in whenever you're you're ready for uh, a comment. Uh, and likewise, for the team who are online, feel free to jump into the chat and I'll try and uh, track things and bring things in as well. Um, so IBC, um, this is the second year that we've covered IBC. Um, uh, last year um, uh, was was uh, quite an experience for a number of us who kind of went to it for the for the first time uh, have, after having seen a lot of the different shows from from Noah uh, and uh, and Josh and the team uh, uh, Roscoe and Guy who've uh, you know, after a lot of us being remote uh, we were uh, 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 got our chance to kind of run around a, a convention center with cameras for the first time so this is uh, this show we did deliberately slightly different so we made different choices in the build up to it um, than um, than last year's show and also having learnt from some of the other kind of larger OH uh, coverages um, so in, in this show um, we only really started planning it around about August there were different discussions prior to that about maybe what we should do there was a very gentle kind of conversation aimed around you know what um, what have we learnt from the other shows so we had 13 remote crew and 7 field crew uh, and we only had 6 main team meetings there were lots of smaller kind of little kind of meetings and discussions uh, across uh, and discord and other things um, uh, and we kind of broke it down into kind of our pre-production period where we had a group of a uh, group of us who were mostly then kind of co-designing it essentially just thinking through what we um, what we liked about different shows what we wanted to 
do differently with this show, what we wanted to experiment with. Um, one of the main things that, that we wanted to do differently with this one is uh, uh, kind of a focus upon the field team uh, as the priority, um, that, that we wanted to be led from the field. There was a certain feeling um, from, from all of us, uh, from, from a number of us, uh, all of us is maybe too, 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 too general, um, that the panel-based sections of some of the other shows um, lost energy. Every time we flew, kind of came back to the panel, then the energy would be sucked out of some of the actual performance. And I'm going to use some performative terms because I'm a theatre director, so uh, when I say uh, energy and sucked out and pace and things like that, it's because of uh, because of my training. Um, so the, the aim was to kind of keep it more live, keep it more nimble. Last year's IBC was really, really an intense experience for a lot of people. Um, uh, my wife actually strangely enough, after this IBC kind of said that last year I was incredibly stressed. I didn't feel it at the time, but she said she's never seen me as stressed as, as our last uh, as IBC 2022. So um, I'm sure that translated to the team in different ways. Whereas this one, we, we went into it with the literal aim of let's do it more relaxed. Let's be more relaxed with what we're trying to do and trying to aim for. Let's drive it from the field. Let's not kill ourselves. Let's uh, uh, see where we can bring people into it and, and uh, uh, how we can help them because this whole conversation around the idea of um why are we doing these shows you know who's the audience we're doing this for you as the the the, those watching right now is that our community who we're doing this for how are we going to help them how are we going to uh uh, how best can we just uh uh serve that audience is it just exploration of the show floor and showing people what's interesting or are we going to try and solve things for people so we tried to blend those kind of concepts together very much so uh uh all the way through kind of the the initial planning that we would come back to those things as our as our main principles we wanted to have a small panel um and again these are all just choices that we made for this show it's uh, you know other choices we made at other times but we wanted to deliberately have a small panel of who would then reinforce the field with extra knowledge that the field didn't have so the field would lead the way with the knowledge that the field team would have so it's less about um, the questions from the audience uh, and more about what the field members were really excited about and then adding on to that then okay we get questions submitted in advance how can we then best answer those where whereabouts should we go to to answer those and then the panel would reinforce that with extra knowledge um, so we deliberately tried to keep it quite small um, even last year's IBC we had a four person panel so this was even smaller we had Javier and Guy um, and so really kind of focusing in uh, on, on two people and we wanted it to be a a a free a free kind of back and forth between the the, the panel and the the field. So um, what was particularly different, as I, as I said, is the 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 panel the, the field were leading the way. So the field would host it, not the the panel. So as soon as we would go live, we would go straight to the field. This obviously then led to quite a bit of an effort on, well, how can we guarantee signal? So. Uh, signal is the really interesting thing because we knew um, we knew t- two things we probably wouldn't have the live view system that we had last year uh, and that we had that the other kind of other kind of shows so what we did was a heck of a lot of testing um, we tried to uh, have a, a, a lot of different uh, kind of pathways out of the field and to have redundancies and have kind of backups. Um, so what we did was uh, focus upon a couple of different key aims and Jonas can talk a little bit more to this uh, with, with the, the exact tech, but we decided to do a, an SRT pipeline off out of the out of IBC uh, and then into the OH system. So last year we, we used a completely different system outside of OH, partially because of time, because we were in a different time slot 
that most of California would be still sleeping when we went live uh, and uh, we didn't want to wake up JJ too early. Um, he gets up early enough as it is. Um, so he, the, 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 uh, uh, I'm just hearing people in comms going, oh, that's quite funny. Um, so uh, we wanted to do a lot of testing and a lot of things uh, and uh, we, we wanted to kind of practice a lot. So we did a lot of different kind of early tests um, with, with, with the equipment and kind of building things up because one of the big challenges, and I'll show this kind of later on, uh, one of the big challenges is bring kit together from a lot of different places um, that you never get to practice with until it's there. So all those kind of different photos, that, that that's me testing with kit that I have here that wouldn't necessarily go there, but would give me a bit of practice and the others can talk about their own kind of uh, preparation, but a bit of practice of understanding how A will connect to B. Because it's not just about can we arrive on site with a camera, it's it's we arrive on site with a camera that has to connect to a monopole, which has to connect to a uh, video monitor, which has to connect to a encoder, which has to connect to, it's all the little bit and pieces uh, and the battery management all of all of that that really kind of get you um, when you arrive and you realize you haven't got some type of connector to connect the two things together. Um, so the uh, pipeline we, uh, after all this testing, the pipeline we chose to do is this. So um, the Lumix, uh, the Panasonic Lumix cameras, the BGH1s uh, from from uh, uh, Jonas uh, going into a Pearl Nano encoder um, uh, and then going into a PEP link for, for uh, uh, signal um, that was then bonded through a system that Jonas will probably talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then we'll send that through to um, uh, Femix, which was then hosted in the 090, the, the OH system uh, back at uh, back in California in Phoenix, and it output via deck link into the main uh, the main system. Um, so that allowed us to um, uh, kind of play with that, that that kind of chain of uh, of really reliable video and uh, and uh, bonded kind of cellular, um, but allowed a uh, really nice kind of quality of signal. Um, Jonas, I don't know if you want to jump in at this point before I go into more detail of the of the field team stuff. Sure, yeah. The I mean, you covered the basics really, really well. The idea was that we um, used the Epiphone Pearls to send uh, two inputs in a 1080p left and right uh, mode, where you just put two 1080p signals next to each other to vMix, and vMix can decompress it and send it out over SDI 1 and 2. We did run into some issues with uh, packet reordering in the tunnel. Um, there were a couple of factors that affected that. So in the end, we were really lucky that we had backups and we tested and planned those backups. It uh, just picked up the backups. I think as soon as that decision was made, it was really fast uh, for us to recover to the backup. But yeah, uh, we spent quite some time testing it, but it's hard to test, um, especially with different like infrastructure on the mobile carriers. Um, what was really cool is we brought into our own sims. So those sims were able to um, use the sims that can go into all of the networks. And then we had our own uh, backhaul. So we were downlinking in Rotterdam. And then Rotterdam, we had a direct connection to the DKICs in Frankfurt. And there we had an AWS or debonding server. Um, so that worked really nice. And even when we used the live view, that really helped us get the low latency, low jitter, and all that. Um, yeah, so that was a big plus point. And then the BGH1s, I think, worked really well. Even when it was really dark, they produced a nice image. Um, and they're a little box camera, so they are built to be rigged out. So we had a monitor, and then um, also we had uh, power. Because power management was really the biggest challenge with this, like powering all this equipment. 
spent like three weeks researching hey how much is the load of this how much is the load of that and like hey we need to make custom cables because like what is that weird connector that the bgh1 uses and like where do you find out what that is oh actually now you found the connector but the bgh1 really wants what is it like 12 volts 2.5 amps or something like that. And uh, DTAP battery is what we use to power it. If it drains, it starts with, I think, 16 volt and then drops. And if it's too high, the BGH won't like it. If it's too low, it doesn't like it. So uh, we ended up doing like step up and step down converters in between to get it to the right voltage. And like I had all these I, cables I, soldered. And Listening to you, I, I feel like saying we, we need to have a second hour where we try to design the perfect camera because every camera is weird like it's got like a bunch of things that are good like sony has a bunch of things and then then there's the, like these weird things like why did you do that and black magic does the same thing and i think we should have it so let's write that yeah. down somewhere but a second hour on just designing like one camera that would rule them all <laughs> so, you know like a little camera like it's it's under five thousand dollars and it and it is got the nah, i mean you know like chris picked up his phone it's fine but it, we need extra things going into it so anyway um all right anyway go, go ahead Jonas. Yeah, I think that's basically it. Um, we then use different stabilizers, and I think Richard is going to continue talking about all the kit, but that's basically the signal flow that we used. And yeah, you saw the, the testing with SRT, and the latency was quite good, and we got some great sync. And even with the live use, like that's really, well, I'm so glad that SRT is um, coming in. Like, because a while ago, like everybody that works with live views, how much of a pain it was to use the live view solos because you had to like send to an RTMP point, still need a live view LRT subscription. And now we, we still use live view LRT subscription, but we could just use one of their mod more modern servers and send it directly to uh, the office house infrastructure over SRT. And that was really nice. We, yeah, we didn't have any of transmission problems that you would have expected. Yeah, as, as Jonas says, um, kind of a, uh, the um, the next kind of step is we planned for the pearls and the and the pep links, but uh, reality kind of changed things a little bit for us. So I'm going to jump back into kind of what that kit was uh, and what we had on 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 the field. Um, so this is a uh, Stefan did some really lovely pictures and video for us uh, from behind the scenes. So this is kind of that kind of early um, first uh, hit that we did uh, at, at Tilta. Uh, and what we have here is, is Ronnie um, what kind of on the, uh, on a monopod with then the, 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 the BGH one um, uh, just, just on a really simple kind of loadout. Um, and uh, just with the BGH one had a 14 to hundred mil lens, a uh, little video assist on top. I say, little and things huge uh, uh, and then the uh, a really lovely monopod of which uh, Ronnie has convinced me um, just by showing me them how fantastic they are we now have three um, and he managed to source um, uh, some wireless uh, mics from Sure from his rep in, in, in Norway um, which was fantastic I mean one of the main saving graces uh, and as you um, uh, said the, the Live View Solo Plus was in the, in the backpack because we had a problem with the, 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 the previous setup and the, as, as Jonas has touched on. So that was Field Team 2. What we've got here then is, uh, is Field Team 1, which had a slightly different rig. So Ronnie and, uh, can kind of talk a little bit more about what, what his choices and what Simon uh, choices, the choices were. So Ronnie was with Field Team 2 uh, and Simon was with Field Team 1 as, as camera up. Um, uh, and uh, they had something slightly different 
uh, with the same kind of camera system, same encoding system, uh, just built into an easy rig with an RS2 uh, and uh, and uh, a kind of slightly smaller kind of little kind of uh, small HD screen, which allowed it for it to be a little bit more lightweight. So the, the final kind of encode system looked a little bit more like this, uh, where we were simplified the chain when we had the problems uh, on, on site the day before the show. And this is, again, a good example of how these live productions need to, to roll with a certain amount of punches um, and, and, and prep is that because we wanted to be field first, we prepped for, for, for there to be redundancy. Uh, Ronnie brought a solo um, plus and I brought a solo plus and that allowed us to have a, a little bit more of a leeway to know that we could always get signal off, off of the show floor i think we had uh, around about three different ways of getting signal off the show floor with the pep links uh with the the live views and then finally if we really really had to with zoom and uh and sell sell either um so uh, the cameras with the audio embedded in the camera going uh into the the live view solo then fire as i said srt into vmix and uh and into the oh uh the the, the oh system um, a bit of a difference from then last year. Um, I just thought this is an interesting comparison of what we did last year, camera-wise, and how how a different feel that was. So this isn't uh, this isn't a video of the one of the live pieces. This is one of the pre-record bits we did with Chris, um, and you can see how static we are in comparison then to the 2023 model, where Ronnie is kind of coming in tight into the the the, the, the shot. He's able to move around really freely. So that's kind of the difference between the bigger trucks that we've used before the the with the, with all the kind of kit hanging off it and then the, the really little kind of uh, light system um and ronnie worrying on his back um the the live view solo and the 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 sure uh sure system so as i said it kind of looks a little bit like this how would you compare the experience um it's a it's an interesting one because the um, they, they, they were designed to do something slightly, uh, slightly different. Um, I think even last year when we did IBC, we wanted to have a little kind of a monopod system, um, but we opted in the end because we had a couple of camera failures for for um, the kind of the bigger truck, partially because of power balance and partially because of you know uh, we we wanted to have moving shots and things like that. So the balance between the easy rig system that Simon had and then the monopod system, uh, and the fact that Simon and Ronnie are really good camera ops um, meant that it just allowed a lot of flexibility so i think designing onto that single stand system and th this is something that um all that kind of testing that i did locally um one of the reasons i did it is because we're going to use a very similar system for the work that i do uh, getting behind the scenes shots because they're just so small so easy he, even ronnie kind of described it as he wants to do this uh, a lot um to be able to get into the equipment uh, and uh, that was that was a fantastic kind of just the the fact that he could get really quite tight in and really uh be really nimbly was it was very very helpful um the big challenge was that it was on his back with what a nuclear power plant um that the shears turned out to be incredibly warm uh, but ronnie can talk a little bit more to that in a second so um as i said one of the the, the challenges with uh with uh, with this was the 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 equipment coming from multiple different uh places so this is my kind of final slide before we go into more discussion based uh, it just highlights how they're are many there the different colors here denote who brought it as in this is th in this small amount of equipment three different people had to bring this equipment and then it had to be combined on site you know a couple of days before a day before um uh, i think uh, i think literally was the day before we went live we were combining it and that's always a bit of a challenge so and um, during the show at the beginning you know uh, we had a bit of a black bar situation going on on on, on um 
field team two's camera and a lot of that's based upon the fact that these cameras all came together the day before the show and that's a real challenge for us getting to another stage um uh, off 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 camp production so yeah that's um that's uh, the end of uh, the end of these little slides so we'll, we'll kind of go into uh, a bit more of a discussion from the rest of the team uh lucas um what what, what would you like to talk about yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit to the challenge that we didn't have the equipment really before. And I didn't bring as much equipment, more like glue stuff, some cables and batteries and stuff like that. But yeah, we, we ran into some strange problems in a way because uh, when we when we dumped the, uh, the pearls, uh, I think originally we wanted to go into the pearls directly. They have uh, XLR inputs and uh, we couldn't do that because uh, we, we didn't, didn't use them anymore. So we had to embed audio into the camera and uh, the BGH1s that uh, Jonas provided, uh, they were uh, actually in use for other streams Jonas did uh, on some uh, time. So we actually tested with other cameras for the rehearsal, I think some Sonys from uh, Ronnie. So it was really kind of, uh, okay, how do we get uh, this out and this in? And uh, the Shures, which are great devices, but uh, they had uh, TA3 connectors for for their main audio outputs and we weren't able to get uh, the TA3 to a mini jack cable we would have needed so we needed to use their headphone output which you can also use as a line output but yeah we had to do a lot of uh, um, uh, gain staging and testing and do this two times over because we had the, those different cameras and uh, the i think the the uh the thing uh, <laughs> that really uh, annoyed me the most is that we couldn't find a long enough cable uh, uh, a mini jack cable uh, so so this ronnie had this this thing hanging from the camera to the backpack <laughs> all the time because of the 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 short cable to embed so yeah uh, i think that's that's the challenge you get into when you ha don't have to the time to prepare everything before you go and so we had to source everything we needed uh, on site so yeah that's i think that was the the challenge and that's you know that's a lot of times when when you have in per, in film production you have camera days where you're you're at the you're in the um, camera in the rental space and you're building out your kit and you end up, you know, figuring it all out. Oh, I wish I had one more cable that was a little longer. Or I wish I had this thing here. And you figure that out as you go. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. I'm oh, sorry. I'll, Richard, I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> you're okay, but um, I'm going to hand it to Ronnie. Yeah. Um, it was a fun, fun uh, couple of days. Uh, we arrived uh, very late to the show. Um, uh, at two o'clock the same day we were going live in after hours. And, um, uh, me and Simon had uh, uh, gathered uh, a lot of equipment that we brought with us to Amsterdam just in case. Um, and uh, better testing and planning would probably uh, get rid of a lot of uh, equipment we had to travel with. At the same time, it's really good to have extra equipment. And, and uh, this show in particular uh, was uh, awakening that you need to have uh, probably backups of backups. And uh, without 
us bringing uh, all, uh, both Richard, uh, Jonas, uh, and uh, all of us, bringing everything that we actually brought uh, would probably be a show killer for us, I think. Um, one of the things that uh, that uh, Lucas was mentioning, uh, there's a, uh, on the pictures, uh, if you show them again, uh, there is a really short tether uh, from my backpack where the live view unit was and the camera. Um, I had planned to have like two meters tether so that I could be more aggressive uh, moving the monopod camera uh, into uh, more uh, yeah, over the, the, the product shot the positions, etc. So the tether was really short and that uh, was very limiting for me. Uh, I'm not used to having uh, that short of a tether uh, or leech. Um, so that was a, a, a problem. Uh, on the pictures you also see that the backpack was open due to the fact that it was really overheating. We had a lot of uh, uh, things in there that uh, generate a lot of power. Uh, so one learning point is to have that uh, mounted on the outside, not inside a bag. Uh, this was due to the fact that uh, the beautiful Shure microphones that we, we borrow from Benum uh, in Norway, our distributor that we uh, bring all these Shure equipment from, um, the receiver was eating batteries and as an uh, as effect of that, it was getting really hot. Um, and uh, I wasn't uh, aware of that uh, because I've used that receiver on top of cameras and then there is, not, uh, there is not a problem. Putting it in the backpack was not a good idea. Uh, at one time we were actually thinking that the overheating uh, uh, denied us to, uh, to have it uh, powered on again uh, for a few minutes. So um, luckily the, the equipment was professional and, uh, and used to being uh, beaten to death by uh, technical people like us. Yeah, so, there was a funny uh, moment where um, uh, we get our first battery call. So that because we knew that batteries with those um, shares were a particular uh, challenge, um, the Brian had built into the run of show specific calls for us to check batteries. And the first battery call for our team, we went to check it, and we uh, I didn't want to touch it. Um, it's, I, I, talent on air I don't want to touch that stuff I, I, I'm not I'm not going to uh, I, I'm not an audio person so Lucas who's also on air he did get to touch it and as soon as he uh, looked at it, it it turned off we thought well first of all I thought I'm glad I didn't touch that because I would be blaming myself uh, and and secondly that's the battery just literally went just that second if we hadn't touched it right there if we hadn't checked it right then i think we would have been in a bit of a challenge so uh yeah battery management and planning like we say a lot of these shows is really really vital and uh it was it was uh it was certainly with this year's a bit of a challenge within the the, the, the burning through batteries literally burning ronnie and simon's backs with batteries I'm thinking that uh, actually brian and and the pre-production was actually right on time on the battery call um, uh, Brian, actually, that's a nice segue to you, sir. Yeah, thanks. So uh, the Rye is a, a quite a large space and I've got a bit of a floor plan here. So in the top right corner is Black Magic and starting right down the bottom of the screen is outside where, where the two teams were met. So it's working your way through these halls and actually trying to cover as much as you can, but at the same time um, really uh, getting enough time within each booth and, and being able to talk to that so it was great I think that the team were able to cover what they could and still keep moving and still keep it engaging so but I thought it was a, it was a great show and uh, it was fantastic to be able to work with the team as well uh, Kirsten 
Yeah, maybe adding a little bit on the floor plan you just saw from Brian. So we had, uh, yeah, like an iterative approach also to how to plan the the show. As Richard said at the beginning, it was really driven from the show floor, from the team. So there was an idea of having some pre pre-planned route that we can also time a little bit how to get from one uh, hall to the other and across the whole area and all these things and then of course when you're on site you really discover all the the, the field crew the people dis discovered oh there's something new and this one and so it's always this dance between having something planned out and also be flexible like on the day until the show starts or even during the show to really um yeah go with the flow and uh yeah bring in the new exciting things that's also why we do all these things and yeah and some some of the things we thought through in the planning worked out very well and some others um yeah there's still room for improvement as always and uh, yeah yeah in the rfi conversation we had um a couple of weeks back um we had an interesting discussion over um uh, grant kind of felt that we should have been aiming for being less tv like and it's it's one of those weird things is because at the beginning we aimed to not be tv like we wanted it to be much more um uh, uh authentic uh being the the lovely internet term um and try and be this kind of slow explore but balanced with um the kind of answering questions and then getting getting good information for for people so trying to balance those lovely things that we really liked about some of the early broadcasts where uh, Guy and, and the team were kind of exploring and discovering things, but balancing it with a route that we understood where we were going um, uh, and which team would cover roughly what, but also enough room within the run of show that we could explore and discover things as we went and maybe find answers to things. Uh, we did a whole different system of question management in the back end where we asked um, uh, Grant and Raj um, to be a different type of question manager where they were helping to maybe uh, guide the the type of question and the style of question we would get in the, and maybe guide the field team into different answers that kind of system never really came through i think in in, in the reality um it didn't quite uh, we didn't maybe give it enough time to try and understand it at the same time because of the the, the nature of the event we we're moving very quick it maybe still didn't give, it, give enough room for actual questions to come through uh, we were also hampered by a number of uh, reception issues so obviously i had a the, the world's largest ipad um uh, and uh, i was able to get questions at different points um the, the one of the handy things of having such a large ipad is that the the the, the remote crew, crew could see my ipad and tell that my mechana was not in line with the mechana they had uh, in the us uh, but uh, it just getting questions to the field team was was sometimes a real challenge so if you did ask a question on the show and uh, and we didn't get to it it's uh, reception issues were, were some of the things that we had to travel through um so finding ways of getting those uh getting more interactivity through into uh in, in into the coast kind of broadcasts um uh, we had a lovely discussion around during the rfi and finding thinking around how to bring in chat comments more fully uh, and bring in kind of beyond just questions was was some of the things we might aim for in, in other uh, other productions the one thing i was going to say is that the uh with makana we realize that because it's really great to have other people use it because they have different behaviors. And I realize there's a behavior that I have that 
got over that sync issue that I, so I never noticed that it was happening up until recently is that I refresh the page all the time. You know, so we, you know, because I'm always worried about bandwidth and I have, I, it's a neuro kind of a neurosis of, for me when I'm on my phone anywhere at, a, at an event, I'm always refreshing pages everywhere just because I just don't trust what I'm looking at. And it turns out that that fixes the problem, but it's, but it doesn't, it didn't have us look at it, you know, in, in that, in that process. So we are looking at, at what, what it takes to, to do that. Yeah, it does. It does fix the problem unless, unfortunately, you, your bandwidth is a bit tricky, um, uh, yeah. and then it then it loses everything. Um, <laughs> right, right. Eunice. Yeah, I wanted to give a bit more context on why we chose to start. Like this year, one of the things that we really wanted to do is be sustainable, because like after last year, it was like everybody came home and it was like this. I'm so glad it's done. This was this huge, intensive work. Um, and then like the question was, is it worth it? And I think with this one, we we try to see what the audience also likes. Like behind the scenes was a big part of what we wanted to provide. So for the officers, people that wanted to watch in the Zoom room, there was a behind the scenes experience that um, sometimes is a little harder to see. Like you wouldn't see that on YouTube. And also, if we look like at the stats on YouTube, I think our audience gives us the right to say like, yeah, we done really well with this. And like we build on top of all the other coverages. Um, right now, we're the fourth most viewed live stream on our channel. Um, so that really speaks for it. But at the same time, like we always in every meeting, we had this like, we could do this. And then somebody was like, yeah, but now we have three people spending like four days on something that probably doesn't matter. And we really try to make this sustainable and make it not stressful for anyone. So like even our, even our meetings, like I don't know how often Richard or I said, yeah, but we don't want to do it stressful. And we all had different expectations, what is stressful or what is not stressful. But I think in the end, it was pretty manageable. Um, and that was a big goal for like what we wanted to do, have it more manageable and then also have it more interactive. And I think that's also where the camera kits came in. They really allowed us to be way more nimble and like the camera kit kind of speaks for what type of show it is. It's like a monopod. We have a foundation, but we're still nimble versus like a tripod where you plan everything out, you set it done and then you do your thing. Like, that's kind of the difference between last year where we like reached out to everyone and everything. This year we're like, hey, we have a tripod. We show up and we can go closer and all that and like correct more. Um, and I think that we worked really well for everyone, like having that nimbleness and then also like making it less stressful for the whole team. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those interesting things that um, we with very few booths that we actually organise uh, uh, anyone to talk to. We basically relied upon the field team to rock up and talk at the booth, and then if there was someone who was interested in talking to us, then we would then uh, talk to them. Um, so that that was again the aim that was for this open conversation with the field team and the 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 the, the remote team, uh, and to to have a, a clearer back and forth. Um, that was the latency issues aside that, that i think that would it's still one of the really good aims uh, that 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 we think could work very very well for this kind of format and and certainly um something fun was really really enjoyable to play with um lucas yeah and i think in the pre-planning uh richard always stressed that this should also be something we have fun with because it's our spare time uh, and some of us already also had meetings uh, uh business meetings uh, my employer wanted to actually 
uh, me to do something at IBC uh, to scout uh, stuff. So I, I had to do stuff. Jonas had to do stuff and so on. Uh, and so this is kind of our spare time. And um, uh, I think uh, uh, this was kind of the... Uh, yeah, the, the idea cell where, uh, this, this, um, ground led, uh, show came from is like, what, what would we like to see? What would we like to explore and how would we like to do it? And I think it, it turned out quite well. Yeah, it's it's interesting as Jonas and Lucas say, the, there was a lot of things left on the cutting room floor that even when we got to IBC, we wanted to try and do, and then certain things uh, meant that we couldn't. So it was originally planned for Field Team One to have two cameras, uh, and then that, um, as as Ronnie says, we brought a lot of equipment that then didn't get used. Partly that's because my fear of something breaking and then we wanted to have replacements. So unfortunately, then we had to lug a massive, like I, I had a 29 kilogram um, uh, Pelican case with me and uh, goodness knows how much Ronnie and Simon had as well. Uh, and most of that did get used, but the things that did get used, we were really happy to have them there um, because, you know, uh, last year's IBC, I flew over with a Pocket 6K and an Ursa and the Ursa broke um during that flight uh, and we, we then had to go down to the, the pocket 6k um so you know it's uh, having those redundancies as you fly because it's it's one of the the interesting differences of this kind of show versus some of the other way it shows is that we are literally changing country uh, and that's one of the differences uh, you know both all the shows involve flying but when you fly to a different country none of the OH team are based in Amsterdam so therefore everything we wanted we had to either find there or bring with us and finding something there obviously adds a lot of time uh, and extra production stress so because this is aimed to be a uh, as, as, as you know, said a sustainable production a, a way of being um light so that people can go off and do their jobs wow people have jobs amazing imagine that uh, and actually giving time to ourselves to to get into it and and, and test kit uh, it was it was it was quite a, a challenge in that in that kind of way uh, and uh, and yeah well you, you can watch it and judge for yourself how successful or not we were um so i think uh, we haven't got any other hands alex on the uh, on the discussion shall we move into questions yeah let's go to the next question Absolutely. Comes from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. And Guy says, what piece of equipment was missing that would have made for a smoother and or better experience for those on the ground? Go, Jonas. I think for me, it would have probably would have been in-ear uh, headphones. I used uh, these Shocks OpenCom and that just didn't work. They weren't loud enough. So I think that was one of the things. And then com-wise, maybe like having... We abandoned the peplings, but maybe it would have made sense to bring them and use, uh, come through them or have a way of communication through them. Because it was really like, it's a really scary feeling if you're on site and suddenly, like, you lost comms. For John and I, it worked out well enough that uh, we were like, hey, I lost comms, you need to start. And we worked off our clues of like really specific, oh, hey, here we are. And now we're here, like, giving that a person a clue when they maybe just have lost comms so that was helpful but i think yeah probably comms is the biggest thing and then a little light on the camera just like a little catch light probably would have been nice um yeah but i think apart from that our kit was really really neat and uh maybe some some better way of mounting it like that's one of the things that i thought a lot about like how do you put it into the backpack? Do you have a mounting plate that you put it on that maybe could have done more cooling, but then in the end, like how do you fly with all that equipment 
and explain that to security where you have a plate that has some custom wire soldered and everything. And yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Next question. Uh, I'm sorry. No, not, not next question. Lucas, go ahead. Yeah. Comms was, I think for me also the biggest thing I had, uh, uh, airports, uh, that worked okay, but they literally died, uh, one minute after we stopped the show so they completely drained the uh, the batteries so that was really uh, yeah not something i would like to do again and uh, also uh, something to to have a low latency monitoring of myself and also richard because it was so loud on the show floor that i couldn't understand him talking to me sometimes and the other way around i guess it was the same so we even we we're just one meter away. We sometimes talked into each other because it was so loud on the show floor. Uh, so yeah, it it was. Uh, I think that that was the thing for me that that I'd like to um, make better next time. Yeah, a lot of times we say that you know comms are half the show, and they're at least half the show. You know, just being able to understand what's going on outside of the program. Go ahead, Stefan. Yeah, I wish to uh, that we had a little bit better support by the app. Uh, that IBC provides uh, to all the visitors. So the app provides a service where you can kind of play the walk uh, from booth A to booth B, but it doesn't allow to kind of uh, create a really a, a path. So uh, I kind of had to cut out segments uh, uh, of the of the the, the way we to, to, we had to find uh, in the in the in the venue and put a map together out of these segments, a lot of screenshots and so on. So if just this little app would have allowed more than one waypoint, it would be really, really helpful. And I think that's a feature every visitor could need. Good, Ronnie. As mentioned, um, return a video is uh, the next thing on my wish list. Um, we had this... Um, uh, Blue Parrot uh, uh, 450 XT or XP it's called uh, which worked really good so me and Simon as camera operators uh, had really good comm uh, we had actually no trouble uh, both listening to comms and, and speaking to comms and I really uh, I must appreciate uh, Brian for giving uh, actually uh, producer uh commands to both me and Simon to move uh, closer or move further away, uh, reposition cameras, etc. It's great to have Brian on the ear all the time. And um, another thing I would really uh, see to, to have is some kind of backup solution for the for the Mukana uh, so that we and maybe the camera people also need to have the Mukana uh, to be ready to move so that you can see the question coming up and you, you're trying to maybe uh, get ready to do a close-up of the equipment or whatever so those those things are, are really important for 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 me uh, at least good Mickey uh, yeah we we had uh, something that was halfway set up, that, but we were not able to uh, fully integrate the, for the show itself. And that was a VPN access to their local networks on the field. Um, we did have the VPN set up. It's just integrating the hardware because they were all coming together from, from different uh, people, different places. Um, if we had the VPN set up, that means we would have been able to remotely shade the BJH ones via the 
IP control and also remotely control all the shore systems because uh, Ronnie was also able to secure um, uh, a shore AD610, which give, gives us um, uh, control of both the ADX5D receivers and also the AD2 uh, microphone transmitters. And being able to control the cameras and sound equipment remotely would have um, would have lightened some load from the field team. Next question. Next one comes from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. You all did a lot well. An area of improvement, syncing response times. There were a number of segments with people talking over each other. How do you mitigate that in the future? Go, Richard. Yeah, it's as Lucas actually just mentioned in the last question, um, the the ability to hear each other was really difficult. So we weren't in, we didn't have our own audio fed back to us in our own comms, even if you could hear comms. Um, so having an ability to have a local mixer or some way to, to feed it in would have probably made that a much, much easier process. Um, just because, uh, as, as Lucas described, we're a meter away from each other and we can't hear each other. So there, there are at least two occasions where I completely jumped straight over him um, without realizing that he was already uh, engaged in the conversation. Uh, and the same when we came to the the end of the show we had designed our um fallback to hear the other field team but not ourselves so when we came to talk to each other it meant that uh when we we're all four of us standing together we could hear the latency of each other um at a roundabout because it's going back from from amsterdam to detroit and then back um it, it just uh, that that latency was huge so having some way of controlling audio on site would have been uh, really, really nice for each field team and then fed into us. Um, the only problem is that, that um, and it's uh, worth it with the, the last question, we we thought about some you know, a good number of these, but we chose to leave them on the cutting room floor for particular reasons because of the, the challenge of getting them done in time with the amount of time that we had. Um, and I think... That kind of local audio, the Mickey is can 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 attest to this better than I can. Um, would be another level of production um, cost uh, that we 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 may not be able to hit within a short space of time. Good, Mickey. Yeah, certainly. I think um, uh, having a an A two with every field team would provide a lot of benefit, uh, both for the actual uh, broadcast audio, but also the experience of our presenters on. In the field, um, in terms of the latency, we were relying for the field team audio going to the other field teams IFB and also to the stages, to the panelists IFBs. Um, we were reliant on the SRT transport um, being transmitted from the field to thirty-two ten uh, to the being put on the Dante network be, and the mix minus being created and then uh, sent over to Detroit uh, for everyone to connect to for comms. Um, that's certainly a high, highly latent pipeline. If we were able to uh, set up additional hardware that could give us a more succinct uh, pipeline for IFB, uh, that would greatly uh, reduce the latency and uh, make the conversation a bit more smoother. Next question. Next one comes to us from Guy Cochran again in Seattle, Washington. And Guy says, what tips does Brian have for handling production curveballs so well? Good, Brian. Um, having a good team behind you who can um, help and assist. And I think every production that we've had is always going to have a curveball. Uh, 
this year we've been working with uh, NAB, Cinegear, SIGGRAPH and um, IBC again. And we're learning as well about uh, productions that have happened in part in last year. And I think we get better with every one. Uh, but yeah, having a great team. But also, um, you can have a good plan, but you have to be willing to throw that away. Um, and just the show is the show is the show. So that's my best advice. Next question. Next question comes up from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, is it Kyle Hammond? Kyle Hammond in Chicago. How much scripting was done with the knowledge that there will be changes and a fair amount of on-the-fly spontaneity? Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, um, I think we, we the, the I posted in the, the chat and it's also in the IBC kind of discussion um, on, on Discord the link to the master sheet um, which has in it actually a lot of the opening kind of um, bullet points. So um, we scripted the, that kind of opening of what you know main things we wanted to hit, and in the run of show there were a couple of other kind of things that we wanted to 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 mention at specific points, like you know a reminder for questions and things like that. Apart from that, it pretty much was unscripted. Um, we were uh, all both the field teams were off the cuff. We knew where we would be going, which is that kind of balance between exploration and, and pre planning. Is that the field team knew uh, what booths they could go to and, and and had knowledge of those booths and could go visit them. Um, and we did some of that through the after hours coverage the day before as well, where uh, Lucas and myself, you know, travelled our route uh, uh, to to some extent, and, and were able to kind of see some things and talk to people um, and get a kind of a, a feel for it. Um, so, but apart from that, we we didn't really script anything. We we had you know maybe every so often talking points that we might uh, want to particularly hit. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the problems with the uh, not problems, but one of the things uh, you have to keep in mind with that small of a field team is since we, uh, since all of us were um, engaged in the technical preparations, we actually didn't have that much time to prepare for the show as uh, as the presenters. So uh, the after hours coverage we did was at least for me the first time actually really hitting the show floor and uh, looking at the different booth we wanted to uh, cover. So uh, yeah, it was, I think, quite spontaneous. Go ahead, Jonas. I, I think you see, especially speaking from my field team, um, the more time we had at a booth, the more pre-planned it was, but it's not like we had a script written a week ahead. But like, if you look at Major World, I think a booth that worked really well to cover is you have John starting and then suddenly I appear in the frame that of course was like planned. And when we did the... Uh, um, X motion, no, uh, multi-camera systems and Aja double hit. That's where we pre-planned how are we going to walk? What are we going to talk about? We always talked about who is the lead for this uh, booth and like who is the person being told to and then like have a bit of like a, just a natural off on each other. And I think that worked really well for that. So we tried to have a mixture in there and planned that, but we didn't have scripts that would not, not have been feasible. Next question. Next question comes from Jonas Dottels in Stuttgart, Germany. For those who can compare NAB and IBC, what was different? Go ahead, Ronnie. Uh, a few things. Um, 
especially the bandwidth, uh, which was not a problem uh, at IBC. Um, there's another uh, thing that we in the team discussed, and uh, that was the facilities for uh, the media uh, crews. There was a lot of those uh, at both NAB and also at IBC. And the facilities at IBC was really, really killing it. They had uh, lunch packs, they had these uh, nice rooms, high bandwidth, wireless and cable. Um, they were actually serving us at the tables, which never happened at NAB, I had to mention. Um, so NAB has something to learn uh, uh, on the catering part. But of course, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a big guy, so I'm yeah, the focusing important on thing, the, the important thing here, the catering, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Go ahead, mate. Uh, and, and of course, there, there was a lot of other differences as well, but but uh, mostly the, the facilities and, and uh, the speed on the internet. Uh, it really opens up for the, the thing we try to do at NAB, uh, doing shorts, uploading those, uh, and, and uh, that will work perfectly at IBC. All right, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, from my point of view, I think um, uh, as a member of a of the remote crew, it w- w- what was really stuck to me is like how how well planned how how well planned and uh, organized the um the IBC shows have been both this year and last year. Um, of course, that's in part of that's thanks to the crew that we've uh, had for both shows. Um, Things were decided on as early as we could, and um, and also we uh, things were clear in terms of, or as clear as it could be in terms of scheduling. Um, the uh, the the crew, as uh, especially with the leadership of of Rich, um, we've uh, we've been able to lock things down uh, quite quite easily. Go, Jonas you get a different kind of lost. Like you can get lost at NAB, but you walk like three rows of booths and suddenly you're at like some big hallway where you can get somewhere. Yeah. IBC, like I I got lost right. so many times because like you walk down to eight and then like if you walk to the left too much, now you're in three and suddenly you're in two and suddenly you're in like OTT land where you don't want to be because that's just OTT land and suddenly you're outside it's like that was a big difference for me and then yeah like ronnie said um it was kind of crazy you like get there to the press center and there was a barista making you coffee and just like giving you tears and everything that was like really great we were a little worried because like when we started it didn't seem like anybody was looking at the press inbox at ibc but then when we were there there was like all the intention and like it was just really cool I don't know, like feeling of togetherness also in the journalist link room, like somebody overheard that we had battery issues and suddenly another journalist comes up and is like, hey, yeah, I have some batteries, take those. You'll be fine with them. And like, that was a really great, like, there was like this collagism and nobody was like, oh no, what are you doing? Like nobody was annoyed by us. So it felt really nice. And then a lot of the vendors, like I felt were a little smaller, the booths felt more, Net like with more of the key people at right. NAB with the distance to a lot of the world I think there were like less key people and more salespeople. and like with this one there were a lot of key people a lot of the CEOs CTOs that were like just excited to talk about the product good Bill 
from my point of view, if somebody who in the early ones was hosting or co-hosting, I was always just frightened to death that nothing was going to work for the first half hour or something like that. So you're trying to figure out how do you pad, pad, pad until things come online. We've established that this tech crew is amazing and we will get something online that the signal will go out. I think you guys started on time every day and we were able to go to the field immediately. That is just a whole different ball game. And so the, the move of the focus from a studio that is going to pad until you can go out and get the first hit and then you're going to come back and it's going to still be a little bit disorganized disorganized there where the host and panel have to kind of fill in until you can go back out. Now the expectation is you're going to be at the show. And I think that is a much better that's a much better experience for the audience because that's what the audience wants. They don't want to be looking at the rest of us who've been talking, you know, on office hours for three years. They want to get out to the show and see what's there. So big props to the IBC team for making that happen. And I think that push to move out in the field fast and stay there has been a very big boost to the quality of the coverage. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I think what was interesting, Bill, uh, on that is the the reason that we think we felt confident in doing that is because of the success of all the different shows that have come before it. So we we've gone through that experience of oh, will we, we will we have bandwidth? Well, we know that we've had success in twenty twenty two with bandwidth. We know the other shows we've had success with bandwidth. We know in the early days we could go with uh, with uh, with a uh, um, stream video and we can go with Zoom. You know, we we've got a lot of that internal knowledge, so we know we can get signal you know, without too much stress apart from disasters off the show floor. So that that has really helped, I think, allow us to think around, okay, well, what are these now shows, what they can be? Um, in answer to the, the, the some of the things that um, uh, Jonas and the team have said is that um, one of the nice things we had was Stefan and Brian had maps. Stefan makes these absolutely amazing maps of IBC without which we would be lost. And he did that last year and last year um, we had Spike as well. They both, Stefan and Spike, walked the route last year we, they knew where we were going this year we walked the route with uh, with after hours uh, and then Stefan was with us and had had specific maps so that kind of pre-production pre-production planning where people um you know Lucas and I could focus upon doing what we need to do Ronnie can focus on doing what he's doing and Stefan can you know go go take us from A to B it is really really very helpful next question Next one comes to us from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Sometimes when there were two hosts next to each other, the camera auto-focused between them to the background, but not every time. Was the camera person overriding it? I go ahead, Ronnie. No, uh, it was uh, purely uh, not knowing the camera too well uh, due to the late arrival of me and Simon and uh, uh, access to the equipment really good cameras uh, uh i was the one that uh, made the quick menu go on onto the camera and out to the uh, broadcast so it was purely uh, knowing the equipment so um to be to be testing and doing stuff with the, the equipment you're going to use is really important so and that goes also with with the autofocus which the question is all about um we had two different settings on autofocus and um Simon's uh, camera was a little bit more uh, focusing wider, and uh, Lucas, uh, um, Jonas can probably uh, speak a little bit more about that. Uh, me and Simon are, sorry to say, very used to the impeccable focus on the Sony cameras, and um, uh, that is uh, that is my answer kind of thing. It's uh, knowing the equipment. Go, Jonas. 
Yeah, and I think with this one, we were done with setup early enough that we like actually started, hey, let's tweak the autofocus settings to be just right. And I think somewhere we might have not set the zone correctly or the camera tried to focus on something else, but like generally it worked pretty well. And especially with the bad light conditions that you have on the show floor, I think that's where the dual eyes of the BGH1 really shined and like allowed us to not bring big lights and still get a good picture. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Did you have any RF challenges in the venue? Go ahead, Ronnie. No, uh, with these uh, microphones from Shure, uh, they they fixed uh, everything. Me, uh, we had a discussion with Mickey uh, and uh, Lucas uh, before we went onto the floor, and we decided not to do uh, a new uh, frequency scan. And uh, the microphones are just uh, you know doing their job. There was a lot of RF uh, interference, but we were uh, unable to to have uh, any impact on that. So the Shures are really really good at this. Uh, uh, Type of production. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, and uh, we also reached out to a couple of colleagues of mine that uh, that are from Amsterdam, sound mixers as well, that are from uh, Am- Amsterdam, and asked them about uh, good frequent uh, good frequency bands to use a- around RAI, and uh, we did that for both uh, both uh, 2022's IBC and also this year. Um, so we started off with kits that are that that operate in frequency bands that are pretty good in the in the area next question next question comes to us from roscoe jones in madison indiana conferences often have different tracks how might me benefit from following such a model should we always cover the latest announcements or maybe stick to a specific track go richard um, I think, I mean, my answer is that um, I don't care what the conference wants to do. Um, I care about what the audience that we want to to serve wants. Um, so, the, I mean, that would be my, my very short answer to it. Essentially, um, understanding how we want to design the production is one of the biggest things and then trying to execute it in, in, in with with that kind of plan is is, is the, one of the most important things um this ibc had a very large esports section that we didn't cover um they had a, a future system that uh, kind of whole kind of looking at future technology which we didn't quite cover we we covered what our team knew really well so that we could talk about it and give good answers and we 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 went where the questions might lead us uh, in other instances um so it depends upon how you're designing this show. We had limited time when you were only doing one show. We weren't going to do, and that show would only be an hour and a half to two hours. Um, uh, it, we wouldn't be doing, so we can't do everything. In fact, we lost about three or four booths, I think at least maybe two or three booths from field team uh, to our, our team at because uh, we, we, we had went long in some of the other booths. So there's only so much you can cover um, and then deciding how is that going to serve the audience. Um, so if we have more time and more bandwidth, then I think f- exploring more, being more informal with after hours and like doing more things in different ways would give us maybe more freedom to do, to, to discover maybe other elements that, that the, our audience might like. At the moment, we're, we're, we're taking a certain amount of a, a educated guess about what this audience will, wants to see. And we did, you know, in the last IBC as well as this one, ask this audience what they wanted to see uh, and then try and be led by that. So, um, what the conferences want to talk about is, to me, separate to what we as a community want to deliver. Good, Lucas. Yeah, and I think the thing we tried to borrow from those tracks was that we wanted to have kind of um, 
uh, themes uh, the field teams uh, would talk about. So uh, my theme was obviously audio and uh, uh, Jonas talks a lot about uh, uh, distribution, how to get things into the cloud and so on. So we tried to do uh, tracks in that way. But um, yeah, we, since we had to uh, rearrange some stuff uh, and and lost some booth, I think the one thing we could try to make uh, better next time is to uh, promote those themes even more. Yeah. And, and for us, you know, the big thing is, is capacity. So as we have more people, as we have more things, my goal would be right now we're doing, you know, one hit or two hits, a little bit in after hours, a little office hours the, we would start thinking about tracks when we're running, you know, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Like, so, you know, or maybe even 10 a.m. To, to 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 6, 8 p.m. And we're so full of just one track. I, I'm very, uh, reticent to do tracks because I, I think that the whole audience should be there and be part of that process. If we got to a point where we were busting at the seams, then we would start to subdivide, you know, but that's, but I think we're probably a couple of years away from that level of, of uh, coverage. Uh, next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Most vendors seem happy to on the fly interviews. Did somebody prep them ahead and were there any that you couldn't line up? Go ahead, Richard. Um, yeah, I mean, they're there to, the vendors are there to talk about their, their goods. Um, so, I mean, we didn't go with the aim of talking to the vendors a lot of the time. I mean, that took a lot of pre-prep last year and that we wanted to do without. Um, but when someone was available, then we would we would take them. So it just depends upon, uh, I think, both by both experience. So as we arrived, there would usually be around about two to three minutes, uh, anything up to 10 minutes to talk to the booth or set something up. So that allowed for sometimes there to be someone available. Black Magic is a bit of a different experience. Um, there are a number of questions that we got for Black Magic that just weren't appropriate for Black Magic, um, just because they're not going to give certain answers at the booth, and that is similar to the, some of the other booths. So we should have probably set up someone. Um, though last year we did set up someone, and they, then they did, they they weren't there. So um, it's the kind of there was a lot of kind of um, at that last segment. Um, me walking, wandering around and negotiating with the black magic person about which questions they could answer on air because sometimes they just don't have the answers. It's not that the question is 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 too hard or or, or secret. It's just they don't always have the, the the information in hand. So some some booths would need pre prep. Uh, I think in the future and, and in this instance, most booths were were ha very happy to be um, to to be kind of asked if they have time to, to talk about that um, but we didn't want to talk to salespeople. we wanted to talk to tech so uh, and that often allows us just not to go through the kind of sales pr rep kind of system um uh, Jonas and the other the other field team might have had a different experience Jonas. yeah so we run into one issue where like Intenora was literally celebrating being in business for 20 years while we were arriving at the booth. So that was a bit of a problem. Um, but we generally took the approach of like, tell me all about your product. And then we're going to tell our audience what's important about that and put that into context. Because I think that's like one of the things we kept saying is like, we are professionals who work in this industry, but we can offer that like, maybe typical media couldn't offer is context to what are we seeing? Why is this exciting? Why would you want to use this? Why are we so giggly about this little thing that looks like a knock, but is an encoder? Like, why does this matter? And that's really what we try to add, like the context of our experience. And it was crazy. Like 
the SIP Radius LLC people literally let us take over the booth. They like moved all their furniture away so Simon could stand in the right spot to get the right camera light and like right thing. We took the vMix booth over. Um, the mo- uh, multicam systems, they were like, yeah, here, here's our stage. We'll make sure no one else comes on. Take it. Yeah. It's yours. So like we really reached this point where like some of the vendors I were for Zip Radio, for example, I went in with the smaller vendors. I went in and say, "Hey, we're gonna come over with live stream tomorrow. Tell me a bit about your product, so I could uh, put, know enough about it so we can put it in context." And then for other stuff like the Ayaja stuff or the um, multicam system, we knew a lot about it, and then we just went off each other. But like. The major booth was a great example where I think talking to a vendor worked really well because he was technical. There was no like sales stuff. We did some great interviews and then we went out within five minutes. And that's, yeah, everybody was really happy to talk to us. It was great. At Blackmagic, they just kind of did this thing where they tell you about it and then you tell the audience. But like even there, we arrived and we were like, "Hey, could we show the back?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure. Do whatever you want with the equipment. Do do what's great for your audience." And like, that's not normal. That someone is like, "Yeah, sure. Here, touch our booth. Touch the equipment. You can right. show it. You can like." We just turned the eighty by eighty around and be like, "Hey, here's the back." So that was really cool that we had all this access and like thanks to all the vendors who were just like, "Yeah, here, take our booth over. It's fine for us." Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, uh, we we had one uh, thing. The the problem, uh, if you have not been at IPC, Saturday uh, at about five p.m. at a lot of booths, you they they start to hand out free beer, and then uh, they go a little bit crazy. So uh, the the last hour was we we didn't for for the booth we didn't really prep. It, this was kind of uh, a wild card because like at uh, Aperture, there was really no one available or you you, you couldn't even pass the, boo- the booth because it was so crowded. And um, so the I think it sometimes works well, but at some booth, uh, pre-pla- uh, pre-prepping is, is quite helpful. And uh, for Genelec, for instance, I uh, asked, asked the, the uh, technical guy the day before just to be safe that he's there because I knew him and I knew he could, uh, he could talk uh, and give us some infos that I couldn't give and the press release wouldn't give. And I think that was uh, something we, we definitely wanted to have is not having some people just read press releases releases to us because I mean you can all do that yourselves but uh, have uh, uh, if we have people on camera uh, that um, they would give us additional info and yeah that I think that was the reasoning uh, about if we prepped or if we didn't good Mickey yeah I think um, this kind of goes back to uh, what Lucas mentioned for the previous question about tracks wherein each uh, field reporter that we had um, spoke about what they're comfortable speaking of and also what they're very familiar with, whatever their expertise is. Uh, the example of uh, Jonas like with uh, John and, and himself uh, talking to Magewell, um, I, I, I could really see how a someone from, from the vendor would be very comfortable talking to, to say someone like Jonas and John John Barker, 
uh, because they understand, they know what they're talking about, and they can um, accurately represent to to the to our audience, the office hours audience, the office hours community, what exactly they're putting out instead of you know having some having a reporter that um, that is just saying just nodding and saying yes. Uh, our our field reporters for IBC could actually have a conversation with these uh, with these vendors. Last question of the hour. Jonas Dottel gets the nod here from Stuttgart. How did people like the takeover versus doing a separate show? Jonas? Uh, the one thing I'll mention is the timing for IBC worked out slightly worse because like now we are really coming up against closure and like right into happy hour. So all the beers get started to hand it out. It was a bit of a problem, but like otherwise I think from our side, it was great to have like not do a show after that and like needing to do the fall over. And I think for the U.S. audience, it we still it have great. I think it's US better because we're all in patterns. I mean, I'd, I'd prefer it that way. I mean, I know that it is a little late for you. I think that we definitely had more people watching because it's in the pattern that we already have as opposed to getting a little earlier, I think starts to cut out the u.s audience and the u.s audience is still you know 80 percent of the of the audience so so i think that um it, de- it definitely got more coverage i'm happy to anytime you guys want to cover something in europe and you want to take over uh just let me know <laughs> like we, we uh, you know i think it's a it's a killer it, you know we know that you guys are going to do a great job and it's a killer um you know piece of content to put in there so um, just look at opportunities uh, that that make sense for all of you. But we'd love to have you take over days. Just give us a little warning, and we'll we'll clear the day for you because it was uh, really really fantastic work. So so thank you uh, thank you so much for all the effort, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing. The, you know we're redefining how we do this. Like everybody has a way that they've been doing it for the last thirty years, and it's just been the same old thing. And all of us are doing it slightly differently, and we're trading notes and figuring out what that what that means, and um, and you know licking our wounds and figuring out what needs to be done next. <laughs> that's, that's a little different than the last time. So, um, so I just really appreciate the incredible work um, by the IBC team and, uh, and the incredible output and also just uh, coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. So thank you so much. And thank you to the uh, uh, thank you to the panel. We can't do this without you. We had a great panel today, including the IBC team and everybody else that came on. So really, really good panel. So uh, thank you all for for joining us for the first and second hour. Uh, thank you to the producers for all the great questions that had this rolling. I and thank you to the team on the back end that we're staying a little late. I apologize. I just felt like there was a handful of questions left, and let's just close this thing out and make sure that. We got all of the knowledge we could get out of this out of this uh, great uh, endeavor. So, so anyway, so thank you so much for holding, sticking with us, and uh, running this a little late. Uh, we don't do it very often, but we really appreciate all of your work. Um, we traveled 137,000 miles. That's uh, 221,000 kilometers, and that is a, over a billion, uh, 1.090 billion bananas for scale. <laughs> all right, uh, let's go jump into after hours. <laughs> 